Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My guest this week is a husband, father, and author of the book, The Psychedelic Christian, Paul Rees. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Introduction. Why write a book called The Psychedelic Christian? It is a title that I have wrestled with for several years. It is a title that will create strong reactions from believers and non-believers alike. I do not intend to suggest that eating psychedelics was the reason I became a Christian, nor do I intend to suggest Christians should eat psychedelics, although I am very honest about the question. I almost changed the title to The Supernatural Christian because I believe the supernatural aspects of God and the peace and truth found in Jesus are what people are searching for when they take psychedelics. My intention in writing this book is to reach the fringe seekers of truth with the message of Jesus Christ. I am aware that many Christians will judge this book solely from the title. If I were to write this same book and call it The Christian, there is a strong chance the audience I am trying to reach would never pick up the book. In prayer, God told me that I am not writing this book for people who already know Christ, but for the people who had never set foot inside a church. That being said, if you are a Christian reading this book, I welcome any thoughts, questions, criticism, or judgments you have. So if last week you ate a handful of mushrooms, sat under a tree, the tree told you its story, ring by ring, from when it was a seed until present. If you cried tears of joy for hours and your heart broke from the beauty of it all as you realized the tree story had been repeating itself since the beginning of creation, then this book is for you. If you spent a year in the Amazon jungle drinking ayahuasca in pursuit of enlightenment under the guidance of a manipulative guru, if the universe became a spider web and that web became every thought you ever had, and you saw your true potential as a creator along with every lie ingrained in yourself since birth, then this book is for you. If you smoke DMT and your spirit shot into the cosmos through the vibrations in space caused by every event that ever occurred on Earth, if you made it to the first bright blinding word that exploded to start it all and you almost died because your spirit lost its physicality and who you were 20 seconds ago no longer exists, you guessed it, this book is for you. I could tell you a hundred stories that would mirror your experiences. My intention is to reflect what I found in a relationship with Jesus Christ after searching many other paths. There will be some expressions that revisit my past and reduce a paradigm-shifting trip to a word or sentence. My hope is that the supernatural nature of God will shine through in my stories and words and appeal to those seekers who are fully engaged in a spiritual journey. I will use free verse, poetry, art, stories of intimacy with the Holy Spirit, my testimony, ponderings, and Bible verses in order to share my journey with you. I pray that each page would contain a seed of truth that would affect your heart and soul. I pray that the seed would grow in your heart. I pray that you would have faith and believe in Jesus Christ. My goal is to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. John 15, 5. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. God told me one thing before I started writing. Be honest. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to begin with a personal note. This week, I met a woman who told me that she drove cross-country with her sister, listening to my podcast with Allison Armstrong. The woman said that they barely made it through the entire episode during the drive because they paused it so often to discuss what they were hearing. This is the second time I've heard a story like this about a pair of sisters listening to my podcast on a drive. It's a humbling reminder to me of the impact of my work. I will never know your names, but I know that there are thousands of you who listen to this podcast each week, literally around the world. You listen on long commutes, at work, cleaning the house, or hanging with your spouse. You have this podcast on in kitchens, living rooms, offices, cars, and on airplanes and headphones. You think about the ideas my guests and I share. You argue about them, or argue with them. You learn from them. What I do is part of people's lives in ways beyond my understanding. In 2022, the most precious commodity that any of us have is time and attention. You give me and my guests yours for sometimes up to five hours. That is a gift to me. So wherever you are right now, if you're hearing these words, just know you have my gratitude. Thank you for making the Renaissance of Men podcast part of your life. Together, we are the Renaissance. As you may have heard me mention before, I'm new at being Christian. I was baptized in September 2020. But in that short time, a lot's been changing in the Christian world. First of all, there's been a resurgence of interest in Christian culture towards masculinity. Pastor Doug Wilson and I got into that a bit in our podcast last week. There's also been an explosion of interest from secular men in returning home to their Christian roots, a subject I hope to get to in the coming weeks. But beyond both of these important developments, there's a third trend that has even more fascinating implications for men, women, the Christian faith, and even our world. Because I'm far from the only person from the universalist world who's found his way to Christ in the past few years. In fact, as far as I can tell, thousands or perhaps even millions of people from around the world are abandoning their universalist beliefs, which you may know under the heading of New Age, in favor of Christianity. For a bit of distinction between the New Age and Universalism, Universalism generally believes that all religions are part of a larger meta-religion. They're all equally valid pathways up the mountain of truth. Aldous Huxley wrote a book about this concept called The Perennial Philosophy. New Age expands that to include things like extra dimensions, aliens, astrology, psychedelics, Atlantis, the occult, crystals, what's traditionally known as conspiracy material, and much more. You can be universalists without being New Age, but all New Agers are universalist. Against all odds, it's this group of heterodox thinkers and believers that are finding their way into Christianity. And there are YouTube channels to prove it. One such channel is Stephen Bankars. He once ran a massively popular Facebook page called Spirit Science Metaphysics, and now he's a professing Christian bringing the gospel to the New Age community. Another one is Doreen Virtue, and on Instagram, I know and follow several more. But there's one small problem. People from this community, myself included, bring a wealth of information and perspectives with them that don't fit neatly into a traditional Christian worldview. For example, I personally know that some crystals have healing power. 
On an ayahuasca ceremony in 2015, I used two of them to pull 15 energetic shards out of my gut, which to me felt like pulling thorns out of a lion's paw. What is a Christian supposed to do with any of that? It's an unanswered question even for me. I can also speak positively about the two years I spent in psychotherapy or the sound healing ceremonies that I participated in that brought peace to my heart. And those are just three experiences. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Paul Reese, and he's a husband, father, public speaker, community leader, and author. And if the experiences I listed above sound far out, Paul's experiences are impressively otherworldly. Lucid dreaming, meditation, Gnosticism, Hinduism, raw food veganism, microdosing, psychedelics from every letter of the alphabet, a year of off-grid living without electricity, and if you can believe it, a lot more than that. Paul is also the author of a new book called The Psychedelic Christian, where he outlines his former life and how it led him unexpectedly to Christ. In our conversation, we discussed Paul's amazing life story and how it made him the man he is today, how Christian denominations like the hypercharismatics can create dangerous environments for believers, Christianity, psychedelics, and sexuality, how we're in danger of losing generations of ancestral wisdom to modernity, how I found Christ or Christ found me at Burning Man, and finally, the boundary lands of Christianity as it begins to welcome travelers bearing stories of wild journeys in the spirit realm. These are difficult and controversial topics to discuss. New Age people are cool with any world religion other than Christianity, and conservative evangelical Christians have spent centuries or even millennia refining a Bible-based view of the cosmos without the need of esoteric chemicals or practices. To navigate these topics requires a man of deep wisdom, integrity, love for humanity, and reverence for God. And as I think you'll see, these all describe my friend Paul and his outstanding book, The Psychedelic Christian, to a T. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author of The Psychedelic Christian, Paul Reese. Paul Reese, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Glad to be here. You know, you sent me a copy of your new book, uh, The Psychedelic Christian, and uh, you and I spent a, a good bit of time talking at uh, TJ Reeves' wedding. And for listeners listening in, TJ uh, was one of my podcast guests, I think back in September and October. And so obviously there's a lot of overlap in our, in our interests and, our, and, uh, and uh, subject, so many subjects to explore and dig into. But um I really want to dive into the book, but to give some listeners some context, let's let's go over a little bit about your uh, your religious and, and spiritual background, because obviously you've done a number of things, television, and been on a number of podcasts and fitness, and traveled through so many different worlds. But let's just kind of lay the groundwork for your your personal spiritual evolution, and then we'll go into the book, because I think that there's going to be a lot in the book that uh, that listeners will, will want to know about, and there's a lot for us to discuss in there. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in a Christian household. I was one of six. We had have I have one adopted brother, Jason Copeland, and um, amazing Christian parents, like the best Christian parents you could ever ask for. The type that truly exemplified the love of Christ. They loved people. They took in homeless people. They fostered. They adopted. Um, the way they loved each other reflected the love the love they had for Christ. And they raised us um, that way as well. Mm -hmm. And I was raised without television, uh, so I did lots of reading, lots of sports, lots of outside friendships. So that part I'm very grateful for. Um, 
it was also a cons- pretty conservative uh, as far as like a religious uh, upbringing, pretty conservative, uh, no dancing uh, for a while wow. there. There was no like, you know, shorts above the knees, no taking your shirt off when you go swimming. Uh, they were focusing <laughs> on modesty and, um, you know, those kind of things. And they got more lax later on, but those were things that I grew up in, no secular music. And um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. And so at the age of 12, we were in an unhealthy church environment. And just uh, for frame of reference, I've moved 45 times in my life. And oh, once that, or twice? Yes, just once or twice. And <laughs> oh, man, yeah, my uh, my dad was in the military and he was a good recruiter. So anytime recruitment was low, I was gonna he say. would uh, move to another city. And so we tried a lot of churches, but at the age of 12, we were at a church that wasn't very healthy. And um, I... What is that? that? Can you you unpack that? What it means just very briefly, what it means to be an unhealthy church? Because there's lots of examples of that. uh, This is just me speaking. This isn't a cohesive voice from the church at that time. Sure. But I would say that it was... uh, I believe in discipline, but I believe there was a point where discipline is unhealthy and i believe that church uh, promoted that and i lived that for a little while i also believe there's a lot of hypocrisy i also believe there was a god complex from the pastor uh, all those things fit together yeah they kind of controlled the entire congregation and it was uh at that age and every sermon i think was hellfire and brimstone like literally like you know and so at the age of 12 i started considering what it'd feel like to burn in hell forever you know and Mm. it scared me and yeah um you know there were hundreds of times in my mind and out loud that i said the sinner's prayer like you know jesus forgive me i'm a sinner i knew the whole thing uh but never felt any change honestly and so Mm -hmm. at the age of 12 i kind of started hardening my heart towards god out of fear and i started for looking for ways that the bible uh was wrong or that you know, there was a hypocritical nature to the church, and that is the easiest thing in the world to find. If you go sit in any church and you're looking for hypocrisy, I mean, it's yeah. everywhere. And so uh, that is um, probably the time in my life where I hardened my heart towards God. And uh, for the next six years, I just kind of went through the motions and, um, my parents disciplined us and we did have an amazing upbringing, but I wasn't allowed to like outwardly rebel. And so whenever I turned 18, I was like, woohoo, you know, I'm on my own, get to do whatever I want and made very foolish mistakes very quickly, but thought I was cool and thought I was, you know, knew everything. And what does that, what does that look like? Can you operationalize that for us? Just one of those. (laughs) Well, um, it doesn't have to be a confessional unless you want it to be, I suppose. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I went to college and, you know, just used my student loan to buy all my friends, you know, lunch and dinner and, you know, bought clothes <laughs> instead of books and Oops. just assumed the first two weeks of college was syllabus only and, you know, show up, <laughs> you know, just not being smart at all. I ended up getting, you know, like a warrant and then I didn't have the right idea my address. And so it turned into more warrants and ended up with like a bunch of warrants because I didn't have the right ID and failure to appear. And got a warrant short- for the first two weeks of college? Uh, maybe. Yeah, probably. That's a new record. I, That's a record. Yeah, I, I, I don't even, it's hard to even remember that. But that was also kind of when I first started recreationally experimenting with um, 
Like I never drank until the age of 18. I never tried any drugs or drank or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I drank, I started drinking and I just didn't really like it. Even I just, it was not fun to me. Like, cause I think I was focused on sports and athletics and my body. And I was like, man, I just feel like really bad the next day. And you know, like, mm-hmm. I want to go biking or I want to go play basketball or want to lift or something. And it, at that point, drinking wasn't very fun. Then I discovered uh, marijuana and I liked that a lot and uh, mm-hmm. recreationally started doing other types of drugs as well. Um, and so you know, at that point, I would say I had zero interest in spiritual growth uh, at all from probably yeah. 18 to 23. It was more me just seeing what I could do in the world on my own terms and getting feedback from the world to kind of verify my belief systems. Um, mm-hmm. Then I had a, a girlfriend and she became pregnant and I have a beautiful daughter named Kaylee uh, from that. And I was married. We got married and I was married for three years and we did not have a, uh, you know, neither one of us had a relationship with Christ. So we didn't have any understanding at all of how to have a healthy relationship. And there were some really, really intense, major spiritual issues that came up in our marriage that I didn't have the spiritual maturity to deal with. Um, and so we both made poor decisions. We both hurt each other a lot. And for the next, uh, the two years through our separation and divorce were probably the darkest two years of my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, every range of experience that you can have, just like murderous rage, jealousy, guilt, um, sadness, sorrow, not being in my daughter's life every day as well, Mm -hmm. which just broke my heart. And so, um, I started eating, uh, mushrooms, a lot at that point. And I started having uh, what I considered at the time, like really huge breakthroughs in my understanding. And, you know, I started to see that not everything is her fault. You know, I was projecting all of the issues onto the opposite. And I had to, you know, confront the things that were inside of me. And that was really intense, but also very freeing in a certain way. And so for the next decade, I, um, there's a lot of story that can go into there. So mm-hmm. I'll keep it short, but um, yeah, I ended up moving to Austin, uh, moving to LA, then back to San Angelo, then back to Austin, the relationships involved in all that. And a lot of uh, the spiritual growth I had at that time, like I would never say, like I did some new age practices, but I think at the time I would have never associated myself and said, yeah, I'm new age, you know, but I was doing meditations Um definitely reading tons of self-help books, uh, doing, eating a lot of mushrooms, uh, Mm -hmm. also pushing my body. I was, you know, there was a almost two year period where I lived off grid with no electricity for a year just to become friends with silence and to stay in a meditative state. I was eating hundred percent raw vegan foods at the time, um, fasting for sometimes up to 30 days at a time, just on liquids and, you know, I was personal training and I had got back from, you know, LA and I had worked for uh, ABC's Extreme Makeovers, all the clients for the show. I was a trainer for them and had a bunch of crazy experiences in L.A. with spiritual people. And so, you know, I, I started learning the language around enlightenment and reading mm-hmm. The Power of Now and, you know, watching The Secret and all the things that people did during that period. Um, I did as well. And uh, I actually knew a lot of those people personally from uh, the relationships that I was in there were connected to a lot of them. 
and it was a it was interesting reality um but i moved back to san angelo which is the place where i'd gone uh through the divorce and it was the place that reminded me of all that and um i had also was into practicing lucid dreaming and so i could just take control of my dreams at any point and go wherever i wanted and do whatever i wanted and um Mm-hmm. I went to bed one night and I had these three dark entities and they uh, kept on approaching me in my dream. They felt like almost like a, like a black hole. Like you just know is more powerful than you just by looking at it and sensing it and feeling it. And <clears throat> I just remember clearly waking up in the dream from the dream. And I was like, wait, that thing, like usually I can take control of my dream, but that thing was in control of me. And then mm. I would just like lay awake for an hour and then I would go back to sleep and it would immediately be like, no matter what dream I had, it would immediately be in my dream. Those, those three entities. And I, uh, I stopped sleeping for a couple of days and, mm. you know, uh, you know, I'd eaten mushrooms like hundreds of times at this point. And, uh, I was pretty aware of how to control my brain in environments. I could have conversations. I could, you know, I could operate on them. And this was the first time where I felt my brain like start to go. Like, you know, you see the homeless guy, he's mm-hmm. kind of punching the air, walking down the street and he's not, he's yelling at someone, but you don't see the person. Like I saw like the edge of that in my brain. I was like, Oh, that's how mm-hmm. it happens. Like you just, you, it, it opens up and it doesn't close. And all of a sudden you're in this other realm and interacting with these entities and going crazy from the outward appearance. But to you, it's sane. Um, and I saw that mm-hmm. and it scared me. And, you know, I'd been a part of philosophers clubs and my friend and I had uh, started a Socrates cafe, like a philosophy group. And he was a Christian though. And um, I always kind of disagreed with him and would argue with him about Christianity, you know, being mm-hmm. just like any other religion and, you know, I'd watch Zeitgeist and, you know, was quoting that to him and, you know, all the things that were popular at that time. And he came over and he prayed with me and uh, it was a specific prayer. And during the prayer, uh, these uh, spirits actually started to name themselves and come out of me, like literally name themselves. And like, I felt them leave me. And as they left me, I could see that their presence in my being had manifested specific habits and thoughts. Um, and I just saw the root of it. And then at the end of that prayer also felt a tremendous peace. Like I hadn't felt in my whole life. And I slept like a baby that night with zero dreams. And I had to, the next day when I woke up, I just couldn't get over it. At that point in my life, I was using everything, um, to determine truth, I use experience. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. like, I don't care if I read it. If it doesn't verify verify it's true through my personal experience, it's not true. And mm-hmm. that was kind of the philosophy I had built up. But, you know, having experienced a form of Christianity that I still believe right now was, was amazing. But I had never felt that physical change in my heart and soul. And I experienced the power of Jesus' name in prayer in that way and experienced the Holy Spirit in that way. And it, I just got on my face and I just, just literally cried to God for two hours. And just from like every part of my heart that mm-hmm. had been bound up, every part that was wounded, every part that was in pain. And I just said, you know, 
God, I give my life to you. I need you to show me, you know, through direct experience who and what you are and whatever you need me to do on this earth, I'll do. And just, just poured out my heart to God and gave my life to Christ that day. And, uh, it was, it was amazing. Um, I would say that, and I write about this a little bit in the book, but one of the hardest things for me to do and one of the biggest errors I made when I first gave my life to Christ was that I relied on the experience of the Holy Spirit. And mm-hmm. in equal portion, I did not get in the Word every day, create a foundation of understanding who God is and who I was through the Bible. And I believe that was a major downfall that I had because uh, the Holy Spirit felt so profound to me and so like freeing and amazing that relationship to be had. And honestly, when I read the Bible, I would, my mind would always go to questions that I could never answer and that were really hard to answer. And, you know, and I would, it was hard for me to read the Bible and I tried because I knew as a Christian that I should, but for the first several years, it was not a constant habit. I mean, I would read it with people. I would go through things with people, um, there'd be periods where I would, but it wasn't consistent. And what I learned is that very quickly, if you're not, you know, experiencing the Holy Spirit through the lens of the Bible, your own wants, will, and desire can very quickly seem to be like, quote unquote, that's what the Holy Spirit's telling me to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really what yeah. my own, my own flesh wanted to do. And I was justifying it by saying, yeah, the Holy Spirit is saying this or letting me feel this or allowing this. And I wasn't varying it verifying it through the Bible. And that was a major downfall in my life uh, at the beginning of my Christian walk. And um, God had to break me of uh, some uh, pride and some other things that had just kind of crept in as patterns in my life. And, you know, God literally put me on my face in the dirt and just Mm -hmm. broke me. And I just had, Mm -hmm. you know, fire ants crawling on me, biting me like stickers on my shirt like, like the stickers in Texas hurt. I just didn't care. I was just, God was just breaking things off of me and just actually just showing me to get in his word and to be grounded in his word. And, um, so that was interesting, but also, you know, the beginning parts of being a Christian for me, like within probably one to two weeks of me giving my life to Christ, I became involved in just several years of the most intense spiritual warfare Mm-hmm. that you can engage in in this reality like you know praying with people seeing demons leave them seeing healings seeing uh just crazy stuff go down I, I saw friends go insane um i've had friends i've had to just be like yep can't be friends anymore um you know mm-hmm. it's uh, and some really intense stuff happening and that's uh that's an interesting period of my life to reflect on now. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, coming from the decade of taking psychedelics a bunch, exploring enlightenment and meditation and silence and cleansing and, you know, human potential and potential of thought, like used to do all kinds of thought experiments to improve my thoughts, whether that's the Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci uh, you know, riding with opposite hands with a mirror, you know, walking under the open sky, just staring up, um, 
sunsets, like all all sunrise sunsets, mm-hmm. you know, sun gazing, like everything yeah. that you could do. I did holocene. All the like, practices. Yeah, like combination of science and meditation, using sine wave patterns to, you know, develop new neural pathways in your brain to transcend, like, you know, past traumas. Yeah. All the things that could be done, I was doing them. And nothing ever gave me peace like a relationship with Jesus Christ did. Amen. And uh, probably like five years ago, God put, you know, just the title on my heart, um, called a psychedelic Christian, uh, because there's an audience that can be reached, I believe just through that title. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a psychonaut and you see that book laying down, you're probably going to pick it up, you know, because yeah. the, the, the two have never held hands. And my intention is not to say that they should hold hands. Um, but it's to say that, you know, I did that for a decade and I experienced that reality. I learned from that reality and, where that reality left me was on the edge of insane and needing Jesus Christ. And so mm-hmm. um, that's the title of the book, the psychedelic Christian. And uh, you know, now I have a little home group that we've started and we meet at different people's houses on Saturday and we do worship and we pray together and uh, we read from the Bible and I work with an amazing group of guys at the Hayhurst brothers. We build homes, but like literally every morning we open the Bible and we read a chapter of the Bible every day at work for the last three and a half years. And so we're wow. about to make it through the entire Bible. And, you know, the first year I think we read Proverbs uh, that would correlate to the day. And so we read that for months and there were certain, then we explored Isaiah or Ecclesiastes or, you know, there were things like that that we just explored. Um, but yeah, we're almost making it all the way through the Bible and I'm grateful for that. And um, that's kind of where I'm at with my spiritual growth right now. And I'm deeply fascinated by questions and philosophy and the experience of God and what that means. And I believe that we all see through a light or a glass uh, darkly, or basically we don't have a full picture until we're face to face with Jesus. Um, that I believe we'll have a full understanding, but yeah, that's kind of a abbreviated version of my spiritual experience. That's the, that's a very moving story. And I, and I think what's interesting about um, your story, my story, and many others is that um there seems to be, and between you and me, at least at least one or two other guys I can think of just right now, um, have had experiences in the sort of the new age universalist, you know, kind of human potential world. Yeah. All these, which will, for the sake of argument, we'll just call it new age, just generally right. that sphere, and have all found uh, found Christ through that world, and it's and it's a very interesting thing that happens after that is you, obviously you have to leave that world because it's there's no Christ essentially in the world at all in fact in fact the one religion that you're not allowed to investigate at all in the new age world is Christianity you can be whatever you want just oh, not Christian we don't we don't we don't look at that like 5000 right. years of human history we don't we don't we don't deal with any of that we're the truth but not right. but don't look at that right <laughs> so so but what happens is is the the men uh leave that world and they go into the world of Christianity and they, and they go looking for something that plays some of the same notes on the keyboard that the new age world played, which is, which are fundamentally good about, about inner healing, about transformation, about holistic health practices, which are, which are good in themselves. And so then you go into the the average church in America and it just, it feels, and it feels very dry by comparison and not in a good way. There's a way in which spirituality, religion should be dry and shouldn't be overly emotional. 
but I mean dry in terms of uh, uh, in terms of like cracker brittle dry. And uh, you can begin to see some of the reasons why people have criticized Christianity over the years because it lacks something. And so what I hear and, and what I see you doing in your book is sort of mine. And, and I think that there are a lot of men that are doing this as well. I think Jordan Peterson has had a lot of influence over it with the terms of reinterpreting the Bible in terms of one's inner experience. He himself is not a Christian, or at least doesn't profess to be a Christian at the moment, but he's introduced this new set of concepts into Christianity where it's like, well, what if there's this other way to think about that can reinvigorate some of the word? And um, so you you write in the, the Psychedelic Christian that you're not encouraging Christians to do psychedelics. Like you, you, ju- you jump on that right from the beginning, which I think is, which is really important because it's such a, a fraught world. But it's also the question of, well, how can we take some of the things that we've learned about um, the, the realm of spirit, let's say, um, and that we've learned about the realm of, of the mind, and how can we use them to uh, reinfuse Christianity with a new sense of vigor? Or how can we begin to map the territories where they overlap in some way so we can create something that appeals to this new generation of Christians coming into the church. Um, and so that's what I thought was what you were doing with your book, because your experience, like my experience, cannot be denied. Like, I, I cannot deny the fact that I've had 15, 15 ayahuasca ceremonies. I cannot deny the things that I've, that I've seen and experienced. That doesn't mean that someone else has to accept them, but I'm incapable of denying them of myself, and I've had my own journey. And so, of course, it all adds up to Christ, but... I don't find that understanding reflected in the church. And so I'm left to do that on my own and you're doing it on your own. A couple of my other buddies are doing it on their own. You introduced me to the work of Paul Antleitner, if, if I'm saying that name correctly. It's Paul Antleitner. Paul Antleitner. Yeah. So um, I, I, I hear him, John Verveke. There seems to be this kind of cadre of, of men that are beginning to ask some of these questions, um, which is why I thought this would be a really fascinating conversation. So as you've uh, explored Christianity a new because you kind of grew up in it in, in a certain way. Have you, as you've explored that, um, bringing your your new age psychedelic kind of background to it, what have you kind of learned, or, or what are some of the ideas that you're that you've been kicking around with that? Because um, I want to I want to mine that territory and see what's in there. <laughs> uh, just so I have a clearer understanding of your question, are you you're basically saying like, are there any beliefs that kind of transfer over into Christianity? Is that what you're asking, or not, necess- not necessarily um, beliefs, although that could be. Um, it can be beliefs, thoughts about the Bible, perspectives, your own practices, um, uh, just no- philosophical notions. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just the, whatever's in the territory. Gotcha. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. <clears throat> I think I may have briefly had this conversation with you before, but because I like philosophy and because I like interacting with people and because I like studying and observing systems, how patterns repeat themselves. uh, If you look at many of the themes that take place in the new age, I would say most of them are perversions of a biblical truth or basically a twisting of a biblical truth in order to, um, be more appealing uh, to satisfy the flesh more. Mm. And, you know, someone like, uh, you know, see a quote like John Lennon and about love, you know, and say, well, how did John Lennon, you know, come up with this amazing quote, you know, about love. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like Jesus says, you know, these are the two commandments that they all hang on to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God with all your 
heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's like, oh, wait, Jesus said that before John Lennon? That's <laughs> yeah. interesting, you know? So there's, you know, even well, the, like we've talked the about- The Beatles did say they were more popular around the world than Jesus too. So a little bit of grandiosity there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's concepts like karma um, that, you know, you reap what you sow. That's the simplest way to express <laughs> karma that I've ever heard. And it's from the Bible, but the yeah. Bible doesn't use karma. But, you know, so there's like this repetition of, and there was a lady that I follow on Instagram and she used to be a new age teacher and she did a post about um, meditation and how meditation is dangerous and all these things. And I believe in almost all the forms that new age practice that it can be dangerous and you can mm-hmm. learn how to channel spirits and get specific powers. And uh, it, it's a reality. Um, but, you know, the Bible message mentions meditation a lot of times um i forget the number probably close to 100 times it mentions meditation and so there has to be a biblical understanding i believe right now in communicating the message of the bible to uh these spiritual groups that exist in america kind of like the enlightenment seekers the psychedelic um, psychonauts the new agers uh they all are fairly open uh, as far as receiving information, um, usually as long as you don't say the word Christian, um, they're mm-hmm. even open to the word Jesus, but there's something about yeah. the word Christian that is just like a block as soon as they hear oh, it, it can't be associated with it. Right. Yeah, Christ um, is a, it's a, cause it's a powerful word. Right. Oh, it, it'll create a reaction. If you ever want to create a reaction, <laughs> start talking about Jesus, um, in a, yeah, I've gone to some, some really interesting events and just casually just brought it up in conversation and you want to talk about creating a reaction um can we jump off that real quick just real quick one thing that i've observed actually is that the the jesus is 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 a word of one of one kind of power but as soon as you say the word christ as soon as you say that word in particular that's when things really begin to shift because that word has a certain weightiness to it. Like people will throw around, like, you know, keep people in pop music. will will throw around the, the name Jesus all the time, but, but they won't say Christ. Cause then you're talking about a whole different level of things. Mm-hmm. So like, if you really want to watch, like, I think it's like, if you, if you put a, put a drop in oil and just want to watch, watch it scatter on top of a, on top of a glass of water or something like that. Just say that. And that's the right. one, that's how you really shift the environment in a certain way. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I would say that's kind of my journey right now with this book is that I want it to be information that can be read and received by the people that I was around for a decade of my life that were pursuing Mm. truth, what I thought was truth in the same way. And many of them I loved and still love and some I'm still friends with. So um, the interesting thing about this book that is, it was the hardest thing for me is that if someone who's into psychedelics looks at the title, they don't like the word Christian. If someone is a Christian, they look at the word, the title, they don't like the word psychedelic. So it's a, it, it's hard. Usually when you write a book, you're trying to please one side and it's not the side that I'm trying to please is, you know, pointing people to Jesus is my main focus. Um, and so people will judge the book from the title, but I want people to read the book. And I actually really appreciate your feedback to me on 
parts of the book. And that's truly what I look forward to when the book is released is that there will be honest feedback. And if I can grow, there may be things in that book that I've written that are wrong and I'm willing to adjust, you know, how I view that. If it's, if you can show me in the Bible where it's wrong, then let's have that conversation. I'll pray about it. But um, yeah, that's uh, my intention with the book is to reach those people. And I, and I think it does that. And I mean, really, when you're writing a book, there's always the question or making any sort of creative product, like there's the question of, are you writing for your audience or are you writing or creating, you know, for yourself? Like the, like the, the filmmaker, Peter Jackson, who made the Lord of the Rings movie said, make the film that you want to see. Mm-hmm. Because if you try and meet the needs of a specific audience, I'll, you, you know, you don't know if that specific audience is, is real or not. Right. So you know that you're real and your tastes are real. And that's what I thought that you did very movingly in the book was, was you related your experience very clearly, very transparent transparently, um, very courageously, uh, and in a way that, that made it clear who you are and, and what your, let's say ethic, what your ethic is towards, towards the subject matter. And I felt invited in, like if, if I were to be over at someone's house and still in my sort of new age kind of phase, and I were to pick that up, I would, I would see it as an open, I would see it as an open door. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of that is, is due to your courage and, and sharing aspects of your story, you know, the, the times that were very difficult for you or the tears that the tears that you cried being having the experience of being broken, you know, which I think is many, many men, I can say for sure, probably women too, but many men's resistance to Christianity, especially now today, as they recognize that their pride will have to be broken. Mm. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of people are not down with that process. Um, right. And if I, if I can say that if, if it was one thing that I gained from my time in the new age that um, I think was a productive aspect for me was like not being afraid to to cry and open up and turn myself inside out to let things go that needed to be let go of. Um, because I came into Christianity through more of the inner healing world and less sort of psychedelic practices. That was always my, my interest was inner transformation. So I learned, you know, how to open up emotionally in these circumstances pretty quickly. Cause I just, it's like, I want to, I want to fix myself. I want to be better. I want to grow. And so when the time came to actually become Christian, it was like, no problem. The truth has led me right up to this cliff, like throw myself off. No problem. It's one of the the best things I ever did. And I think a lot of people who come at it from different angles, whether it's holistic health practices or whether it's psychedelics or whether it's inner transformation or being a a psychonaut or whatever, I think that there's something in it for all of them, but you'll never be able to get them all the way over the line. You know, it's just going to be an invitation that there's a kind of Christianity out there that maybe you've never heard of before but it's not what you grew up with. And I think that's the really important thing to say is, you know, what you grew up with in the Catholic church or what you grew up in, in whatever your Calvinist church is or whatever, this is not that. It's not, not that, you know, I guess in a way, like there's, there's aspects to it. Like, let's talk about that theologically. (laughs) But my experience is I'm speaking, you know, sort of in your words now in a way, you know, you would say my experience is open and available to you and don't think that it has to be like your, your father's or your grandfather's. Hmm. Yeah. And that is, um, that's an interesting point. Uh, there's going to be two more books that I'll be writing after this book. <laughs> one is called uh, Stories I Will Never Tell. Oh, that's going to be a good one. Um, it's the title. And the other one is going to be um, My God, My Father, My Brother, My Friend. Kind of how we experience God through the relationships in our life. You know, like how much of what I believe about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity do I allow myself to believe through the filter of what my dad would approve of? 
mm. at the age of 45. And the same thing with my, my brother, who I love, who has very different beliefs than me. Whenever I talk to him, I filter my language a little differently than I do with my dad because of his mm. understanding. And I, because of his perspective on things, I try to see God through his eyes and it, I don't agree with him at all, but it allows me to at least have that perspective. And, you know, my friends, I've had hundreds of friends that I just love and we've had the deepest conversations in the world about these things. Um, they're fascinating to me. And so, you know, to have the freedom that you have with friends, but then still have your dad, uh, your brother, and then to have the God of the Bible and how to have a relationship with that God on your own terms. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, we all play different parts in the body of Christ and our callings may be different as far as the work to be done on this earth. And to my knowledge, there has never been a single human being uh, that's a Christian in the history of the world that has agreed on a hundred percent of every part of the Bible with another Christian man, you know, no, no, what do you mean? yeah. And, I, and so if that's the case, then we, maybe we're all a little wrong, you know, uh, maybe we don't yeah. all have the full picture. And it was, you know, mm. when I started being able to be honest with my dad, I, at a certain age, probably like around 32, I started just really being honest with him about everything. And I said, dad, you know, what's interesting. I said, you, uh, you are the most, you know, biblically sound Christian man. Your life is living proof of your relationship. You produce fruit for the kingdom. You're a servant. Um, you know, you go to these small conservative churches that are heavy emphasis on the Bible. And I was like, and we're in, you know, a small Texas town and you and the pastor disagree and have to split. And I was like, if the, two people that know the most about the Bible and are the yeah. most conservative. If they, ha if, if there's a split that happens in a church, like what does that mean for the 10,000 other denominations of Christianity, you know, right. uh, and believing whether they're right or wrong. And so, you know, I've kind of come to a place where if my walk is good with God and I'm producing fruit and my relationships are good and I'm in the word every day, and, you know, there are things that I believe now that I wouldn't have believed 10 years ago just because God showed them mm -hmm. to me in the Bible. And everybody's going to have their own timeline for sanctification, for revelation from God's worth, for growth spiritually. You know, maybe it's somebody dying. Maybe it's, um, you know, somebody getting really, really sick that you love. Maybe something happens in a church that you're like, whoa, how did that ever happen? And there are things that can happen in life that change your perspective and reveal things to you and everybody's on that path um mm -hmm. and where we meet on it uh, and have those discussions uh, they don't always line up so um, that that's that's an interesting thing for me to observe yeah certainly one of the discussions that goes on and and my groups of friends is is just at the at the very highest level the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism and Orthodox, you know, because you have men finding their way into Christianity now from various spheres, and a lot of them are very attracted to Orthodoxy for different reasons. I found my way in through um, some Pentecostals, some Charismatics at, at Burning Man, the new inner <laughs> healing techniques, and oh, that's a great. Did I tell you that story? I don't know that. No, I told I'd you. actually like to hear it. You want to hear that story? Yeah. Okay. Let's go do it. I want to hear it. Okay. Cool. So. Um, 
so I had just come off of um, I just come off of a breakup. This is August of 2015. I had put in about two years of inner work once I discovered uh, men's inner work through the Mankind Project. So the Mankind Project, like September 2013, I found a men's group and then I found a therapist. And then for two weeks, I was going back and forth, like from the therapist to the two years, sorry, from, uh, from the men's group to the therapist, working out a lot of stuff related to my past. That ultimately, um, that ultimately, uh, led me to end a relationship that uh, that wasn't properly suited for me. I needed the relationship for a time, but it wasn't suited for me. And so uh, spontaneously, um, you know, let's just say one week out, I'm in uh, on Monday night, I'm in a relationship. And then on Tuesday night, I'm not, I'm not in the relationship and I'm going to Burning Man a week later. You know, like <laughs> literally that weekend, I was like, why would I ever go to Burning Man? And then three days later, it's like, I'm going to Burning Man. Right. You can do that when, yeah. you, when you live in San Francisco. Been so there. I get out yep. to burn. Yeah, exactly. So I get out to Burning Man and I, and I, I found, find my way to a camp. No one knows I'm coming. I just show up and like, Hey, you guys got room. And the story of how I ended up at that particular camp is a whole thing, which is like, there's some pro- hand of providence behind that. I wake up the next morning and there's a guy camp next to me and uh, we just start talking. And I mentioned that I had just gone through a breakup. He's like, Oh, if you've gone through a breakup, you should go to this camp called spirit dream. Um, I just, I was just there. They're really cool. They do a lot of inner healing stuff. Maybe they could help you work through some of the grief. I'm like, cool. So I ride over there. I get into the, um, I get into the tent, sort of the last one in, in the morning session. Cause they have groups in the morning and the afternoon. I was the last one in for the morning group. And then I wait my turn. And then they walk me to the back of the tent and I sit down with three people. Um, there's a, a woman in her early mid forties named Barb, and then a, a woman in her late fifties, early sixties named Katie, and then a man in his late sixties, early seventies named GI. Um, and uh, that's his burning man name. So um, we're, we're sitting there and, and uh, this is my third time at burning man. I went first in 2003 when it was still the wild west I went in 2013 and had changed a ton in 10 years. And this is 2015. This is my third time there. And so I sit down with them and um, they say, so what's been going on? And I talk about the breakup and, and what proceeds from there is essentially like just this three hour, three, three and a half hour long, massive inner healing session where it's (laughs) just like, cause I've done so much of this work. It's like, you know, I've got uh, endless stamina for it. Like, yeah more, bring it. Let's, right. let's re-up another round, you know, another round. And so uh, full commitment to the work. And as I'm going through, they're, they're, they're talking about, you know, spirit, soul, and body. I'm like, this sounds familiar. And mm-hmm. they have their hands over various places, like in front of me, like, you know, mm-hmm. chakra-y kind of areas and stuff like that. Um, but I'm looking around the tent and it's like, I'm looking for any indication of what sort of, um, thread that they follow from the new age world because it's burning man right so i'm right. looking for the psychedelic alex gray art there's none of that there's no buddha. Buddhas, no buddha no no uh no uh shiva you know nothing like that i can't quite Crystals. figure out what's none of that stuff none of that stuff i mean it's a really nice tent and they're really friendly people but there's <laughs> i couldn't see anything like who who are these people so you know we get we get through some some pretty critical moments where with, you know, with GI who was holding some father energy for me, I was able to release something, some judgment that I had that he was holding over me. That was really important for me to speak it. He's like, no, I don't think that at all. It was like a big reflection of my own inner self. Mm-hmm. Then with Barb who was holding some mother energy for me, like, which was really powerful to see like what a, a proper mother, how she relates to her son. That was really powerful. So I broke off these sort of chains 
and that as things kind of wound down towards the end of the thing where it's like, okay, the work we've done now three hours in is done. I'm sitting there um, in the, uh, and I think my listeners have probably heard me tell this story a couple of times, but I'm sitting there in the, in the chair and we're, we're putting, we're wrapping things up and the session's over and I've got my eyes closed and Katie, the older woman is standing behind me and she has her hands on either side of my head and she's, she's praying. It sounds like, but I can't quite make out the language she's praying in or what she's saying. And as she hands, has her hands on either side of my head, I have this vision of my, in my closed eyes and in my vision, I'm standing on this burning man kind of, kind of road, the street, and I can see the tents you know, and I can see people riding in their bikes by and I can see the flags flying in the breeze and stuff like that. And it's like, I'm, it's like a full body kind of experience. And as I'm standing there on this roadside, this man walks up to me and um, he's got goggles on and I recognize that the, there's, there's he's got a face and I see the shape of the hair and I just, as if someone had just walked up to me and I'm like, okay, cool. There's a person here. And then the face, the face looks at me and says, no, look, I'm like, okay, I look. So I looked at the face, the goggles and the head and everything like that. I'm like, all right, cool. And so, uh, the, the vision kind of ends. I open my eyes and, and as soon as I open my eyes, Katie says to me now that there's someone that I want you to meet. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so she, she leads me around to the other side of the tent to this pillar that was standing by the entrance. Now, the side of the pillar that she leads me to was opposite from when I walked in. So there's no way that I could have seen what was on, what right. was on this pillar, right? Mm-hmm. On this side. So she sh- takes me around to the side of the pillar and I look up at the pillar and painted on the pillar is the face that I had just seen in my vision. Wow. And it was the, the face of the face of Jesus Christ of a painting of by this little girl, Akiane, who was like the seven year old prodigy who had <laughs> painted the face of Jesus Christ that she saw in a vision. And that was what was that, a reproduction of that was on the pillar. And that was exactly what I saw. Um, that was exactly what I saw in my, in my closed eye vision, but the face in my vision had burning man goggles on. So, so it wasn't just that. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I would have been able to look Jesus right in the eyes in that moment, but right. Uh, <laughs> right. So um, that was my introduction to Christ, but that was not when I became a Christian that didn't come for another, that didn't come for another five years, actually four and a half years. Interesting. But that was did, my introduction. Those people that prayed with you, whenever they showed you that, did they uh, mention it as Christ consciousness, or were they Christians that were just showing you Jesus Christ? No, they didn't. No, these are these. I found out later. Sorry, I never closed the story. They're they're Christians. They're Pentecostal, charismatic Christians. They had been leading a ministry at Burning Man for twelve years. Wow. So they got a call. They got a call to go out there. I guess would have been in early two thousands. And they live up in Idaho, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And uh, they got a prophetic word from John Paul Jackson was the leader of that particular group of churches. He was a national kind of leader. And uh, and so they went to John Paul and they said, John Paul, we're getting this message to to go minister at Burning Man. He's like, sound, okay, go. Yeah. And so they started a, a Christian ministry at Burning Man. And no, there's no Christ consciousness or anything like that. Hmm. This is full on Christianity. But they didn't use that word because – they knew that if, as soon as he said, they said Jesus or Christ or whatever, that they would turn people off. They just went to to give the Father's love to people without putting a name to it, because there are so many broken people out there, Burning Man, you know, looking for so many different things. And so they mm-hmm. weren't preaching, they weren't handing out Bibles. They 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 didn't actually until I saw that I didn't actually know who they were. They and they were perfectly content to have me leave and not and not say like, here's a pamphlet or whatever. Right. You know, they just were there to love up on people. 
and um, and and yeah, but they're they're some of the most devout and loving Christians. And then the following Christmas, so like three or four months later, I went to go visit them up in Idaho, and I spent Christmas with them, singing songs, and they had gone mm. hunting, and I had bear and elk meat, and I was nice. like, and they were just so happy and full of life, and I'm like. Where who are you guys? Like I, right. I probably would not be a Christian today if I hadn't experienced the kind of Christianity that they embody, because <laughs> my my life my experience with Christians was always very different from them. But they were so full of life and vitality and and love for life and 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 for people that it really shifted it really shifted my perception of Christianity to know that if this exists, there's more to Christianity than I thought. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, I am really curious. I've never seen a, you know, kind of conservative Christian denomination be open to going to something like Burning Man. Um, well, they didn't and, party or anything like that. They right. weren't doing drugs. Or no, anything. yeah, were, no, and I'm just saying I, and it, it makes me curious uh, as to why, because it's such a, I mean, people literally, they're, their portals for receiving spiritual energy are like wide open in Burning Man. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 99.9% of the time is not going to be good. Yeah. Spiritual energy they're receiving. So it seems to be a, a pretty interesting mission field. Um, uh, thanks for sharing I'm that. Trying to get, I'm trying to get them. I've, I went to go visit them in Spokane. Uh, well, I was, I, 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 they came to see me. I was visiting Spokane or, uh, earlier this year. And then I uh, had a Zoom call with, um, uh, with a couple of the members and um, they had expressed interest in coming on the podcast. Cause this is a story. This was a story that they didn't really want to tell. Um, I mean, they were interested in it, but it's, it's sort of, they don't go to burning man anymore. They stopped going. I think they stopped going the year before or the year after something like that. That guy ran into the fire and died. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah. yeah. So they stopped going around that time. Um, and they would always leave before the burn anyway. So they would be there like Monday through Friday. They'd pack up and head out on Saturday um, mm-hmm. because the burn turns into a, a giant shit show on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Such a nice week with friends ruined by a giant party. <laughs> <laughs> That's Burning yeah. Man. So, so they're just now coming around to the point where they're willing to talk about it, um, talk about it publicly. But it's a, it's a fascinating story. And, and I've gotten some of the some of their learnings. Obviously, they had people come out and, and work with their camp who kind of got involved in some things they weren't supposed to. And so they had to send them home and, you know, learning how to communicate to the Burning Man community. They also met Larry Harvey, the founder, once he kind of found out that there was a Christian ministry group of all things, like the last thing you would ever expect to be a Burning Man mm-hmm. would be a Christian ministry group. But he found out and they met him and everything was totally cool and fine. So it wasn't like he was opposed to them or anything, but it's a, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating story and it's a real, it's a real proof that, you know, especially to heal that, hear them talk about their brand of Christianity, the Pentecostal charismatic brand. It's, it's, it really um, brings up a lot of questions about this notion of cessationism that miracles have stopped happening because to hear them talk about it, they, they live in a, in a realm and a world of, of preachers and, and pastors that experience miracles on the regular. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe some people have that kind of thread going through them. I, I don't think it's right for everybody, but um, to say that it's stopped completely, it's like, well, I have some people that, that might say otherwise. Yeah, <clears throat> that's probably one of the top three things that I wrestle with in my heart and soul now is cessationism, just because that's kind of my dad's belief system. And right. I see the safety in it. Um, and then the kind of hyper charismatic 
movement that having prayed with people and having, you know, engaged the realities I have with psychedelics and interfacing with the spirit realm and being familiar with specific spirits, I can tell that sometimes those hyper charismatic environments, they are channeling and using the exact same spirits as Kundalini yoga sessions or, um, you know, some of the TM or, uh, you know, different Mm -hmm. practices and just like, Oh, well, if the fruit of the spirit is you writhing like a snake on the ground and yelling as loud as you can for an hour, maybe it's not the Holy Spirit. Um, right. You know, but it's, it's this weird thing with discernment because I've seen people get delivered before and like mm-hmm. fully change their entire lives. And part of their experience in getting delivered was literally like vomiting or writhing on the floor, yelling, screaming punching um like i've I've seen some crazy stuff um and it's uh it's probably one of the things i wrestle with the most honestly because one is like we get to move with the power of god and god can use us as tools and give us gifts and we can use them and people can heal and we can speak another language to people in their tongue and they give them the word the message of jesus christ um, you know, we can give words of knowledge, words of wisdom, use a spirit of discernment. And those are things that I still actively do. But because the most convicting verse in the Bible is in Matthew, and it says, you know, there'll be many in those days who say, I did not heal in your name, cast out demons, you know, and say, depart from me, I never knew you. So there are mm-hmm. people who can become almost like sorcerers and use the name of Jesus because it has a power, um, hierarchy of power in the spirit realm. and it. I have yeah, not seen anything that has more power than the name of Jesus Christ in prayer. Nope. And, yep. um, and so that is a reality. So it's, uh, it's just fascinating to me because I see how sometimes these conservative churches, they're, they're dead, honestly. And, and I don't see yeah. that in a mean way. I see it, say that in like a way, like wondering if that's safer than allowing what we think the Holy Spirit is to manifest when we are so ungrounded in what God's word is. Um, And um, yeah, it's just fascinating. The only, but the thing about cessationism is I don't believe it's biblical. Um, It comes down (laughs) to the word, the perfect. And and there'll be people, people that disagree with me and, you know, they say the perfect means the Bible and we have the fulfilled canon of God's word. And, you know, that's, that's what the word perfect means. But then the, a verse later, it says, uh, but then face to face, basically the perfect, I believe, means that when we're face to face with Jesus Christ, that all will be fulfilled. All prophecy will be fulfilled. And also, how could Jesus say that, you know, that verse about people praying in his name and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But that means he didn't say everyone. He just, he said some, you know, yeah. um, or yeah, I forget if he said many or some, I'll look that up. But uh, but if he said everyone who prays in my name and casts out demons after the apostles die, you know, then I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of right. iniquity. You know, it's like, if that was what Jesus said, instead of saying like, there will be some that, you know, you misuse my name and get power from it and are sorcerers and they'll be judged for that. But, you know, and there's a lot of other verses and that's, that's, uh, 
side subject that fascinates me, but um, because I saw so many healings and so many miracles at the beginning of my prayer uh, life with Jesus and experiencing the Holy Spirit, I when I would go into a conservative church, I was like, man, why aren't people like praying for each other right now? Why aren't they like, mm-hmm. why, like, where's like, this is the God that created the universe. Like, and we have a relationship with the God that created the universe. And we're like, we can't move when we're singing a song and we can't play anything besides a piano. And it was like, wait, did you read David? He paid like, he paid hundreds of the best musicians in the world to play music. 24 hours a day streaming you know mm-hmm. streaming like literally 24 hours a day like yeah, yeah. they looked it up as like he'd be paying like close to 100 million dollars a year right now and keeping worship session going non-stop with the best musicians in the world that's what david invested in um and nice. so yeah it's interesting to think about and so it's just like looking it's like if i have a relationship with my wife do i want i want to be you know, grounded in something deeper than just having sex with her, um, in intimacy and trust and travel and finances and spirituality, um, you know, all those things. So it's like in our relationship with Jesus, I'm sure that there is a part of it that needs to be conservative and needs to be safe and needs to be grounded entirely on the Bible. But in a relationship with the Holy Spirit and with the Father God and with Jesus Christ, there's got to be a part that's emotional. There's got to be a part that's revelatory. There's got to be a part that is heartbreaking. There's got to be a part that is like shows you aspects of another person that allows you to understand them in a way and see them through the eyes of uh, the Bible and the eyes of Jesus, you know? And Mm -hmm. when those are taken away or reduced to that can't happen anymore, it kind of puts a limit on God. And, you know, what I have found is they say, well, they will say, well, I think that God can heal, but you don't have the gift. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'll agree with that. Like, if that's the common ground that we need to find in order to appease these two categories, then yeah, okay, I, I, I don't have the gift. If God wants to give me the gift and I use it, then praise God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the stance I have now. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, but I have seen the dangers in it. And there was a, a church yeah. that I left that I loved, and it was the only church that I'd ever found in my life that I felt felt at home with. And I left that church because there was a tremendous move of the Holy Spirit within the leadership, and then it carried over into the worship team. And I was working like a half mile down the road at that time, and they called us up there, and we were all experiencing it together. And I just was kind of reading the Bible out loud to this group of people that um, we're all manifesting in specific ways. And then that carried on for a couple of months into the church and the services stopped being, um, regular services. Like they would just worship for three hours. And I'm Mm -hmm. talking like the most glorious worship that I've ever been a part of, you Mm -hmm. know, and there's, there's, I've been to worship things where it's like, man, that's all they're doing is drawing attention to themselves. And it just seems so obvious to me. It's like, why are you like, why are you doing that dance in front of the church? Go into the back closet. If you're going to do that dance, you know, obviously you just want people to look at you, but you know, that could be my own judgment. But anyway, it's what I observe. And I think that, many times it's true my judgment um 
But um, <laughs> that's funny. I think the same thing about my judgment. Yes, it's, it's funny how we do that, right? <laughs> it's um, pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is funny. Um, but then there started to be a time where, uh, in one specific service, uh, the pastor said, "I'm just going to turn out the lights right now, and or turn down the lights. I want everybody to." just go into their heart and connect with God and whatever you have in your heart that needs to be healed or worked through, or if you don't know Christ, I need you just to be praying. And as when he turned down the lights and this was like a two month, this was at, this was a two month buildup to this service. So there's a certain openness in these services that were happening. That was very uncommon, almost like re- like a revival, like on the edge of revival. Um, Definitely lots of people being affected by the Holy Spirit. But then I, when the lights were turned down and the most interesting thing happened and there were people in praying with people, I've learned that there's different sounds that can come. Like if someone is just, God is just breaking their heart and healing them mm. or convicting them or they're repenting. There is a brokenness to that kind of crying yeah. That you can't fake. It's like, you don't care if someone's listening. You don't care if someone's watching. Like, you are broken before God. Like, you're on your face. You don't care about anything else. And the things that are happening in your heart and soul in that moment are are life-changing. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm aware, and I'm aware of people that get revelation. They get extreme joy from the Holy Spirit. And I have no issues with that. But then there started to be these noises. And we're talking, like, maybe 800 people in kind of a dark room and I'm going to make a noise. I don't like making this noise, but it it was like, (laughs) like almost like a Mm -hmm. witch's cry. And, Mm -hmm. and it was like this cackling, piercing witch's cry that happened. And it just mixed in with all the other noises. And I saw, I saw myself in that having discernment of what that was and then I was like, oh, someone needs to address that. Whatever that was, someone needs to yeah. address it. Because if there's an 18-year-old who doesn't know Jesus and they've been like a rave kid their whole life, they're like, oh, let's go to their friends. Like, let's go to this church, you know. There's cool things happening and it's crazy. And they go and they're hearing all these different noises and no one is helping them to discern what those mean. God just yeah. showed me in that moment that it was like a spiritual mating call. And someone's heart in that moment could be like, wow, if that is, if that's part of that, I'm attracted to that. Oh, and wow. Yeah. So it's okay. like, let me respond to that noise as opposed to the noise of being broken on the ground. If we're just all being open to these noises and experiences that are crazy, it was almost like, like a witch had just like full reign in that environment without the leadership like saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's have a biblical understanding of what's happening here. Let's get grounded, like praise God, the Holy Spirit's working. And um, you know, and I and I love that church and I love the uh the leadership there and I have a lot of friends there. I was baptized by the pastor there. But that was the point where I was like, Man, there's gotta be in this whole manifestation of the spirit thing, unless you use the spirit of discernment and unless you ground everything out in God's word, uh, this can get really dangerous and slippery. And uh yes. and so yeah, that was a very interesting experience for me. Um, but I honestly forgot what the beginning of your question was, but it ended with right. that story. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I mean, uh, we're, we're talking about sort of cessationism. Oh and, yeah, that's and right. Charismatics and Pentecostals. I agree with you. Like, I, I think it's, I think this is, um, it's very much, um, it's, it's very much a playing with fire 
kind of thing. Like, yes, you can, with the right amount of fire, you can, you can light up a room like candles, right? Or it can burn the whole place down. And if you're going to be someone who's going to handle that kind of fire, when you're dealing with people's souls, you know, for example, I would say, if I were the, if I were the pastor of that church or someone like that, like the only people even allowed into that room for that kind of thing would be official full members of the church. You can't have visiting visitors that day. That's got to be a sealed container, right? That, that there's no way because if you start, if you let someone who isn't isn't saved, and it's even dangerous for the people who are. But if you let, like you said, if you let someone in there, like an 18 year old kid who isn't saved, who's attracted to that energy, like that's a trap. You just mm-hmm. set a trap. You know what I mean? But if if you have if you have a real good solid container, an understanding of everyone, a shared understanding of everyone in the room what it is we're doing, what it is that's happening. And then the, and then the pastor uh, has, is able to maintain with assistance, assistance like people, a sort of shamanic presence over the room to make sure the room is spiritual clean, it's spiritually clean. And then you clean up the room afterwards energetically. Like I know we're starting to get into ayahuasca kind of new age kind of stuff, but let's, we'll just go down this road for a second. That is the only circumstances that I would say it would even come close to being safe for offering that kind of, that kind of um, practices to your to your parishioners. Short of that, I mean, you're just inviting the darkness within people to come out and jump from person to person, right? And if you're not like like I having been having done a number of ayahuasca ceremonies, that's what happens: is that you know people mm-hmm. have the opportunity to release their darkness, to encounter it within themselves, and then release it. You are also in the dark, and you're instructed to be silent. And to not move around. So, because if you start moving around, start making noises or whatever, things can move from person to person. It disturbs the environment. This is the, the, the traditional way of doing ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. It prevent it keeps everyone safe. But if you were to just sort of dose everyone with this and let them all move around, the the potential for da- truly dangerous spiritual chaos is is immense. And it sounds like everyone in the church you're talking about wasn't wasn't on ayahuasca, but the the danger is no less real, and so it seems to me that if there is um, if there is room for that kind of mu- miracles or that sort of interpenetration of the spirit world and the material world, and you're cultivating it to people which you can, if you're not doing it with the proper safety precautions, that is that's bad news. That's mm-hmm. super bad news, and I and I think that's the argument that's the argument that I would make against a lot of Pentecostal churches. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them is that. Are you qualified to handle this, right. or is this just this just something that you decided that you wanted to get into? Who certifies people? Who makes sure that there are ethical standards of practice? Oh yeah, no, I'm good. It's like at least you know, at least uh, you know, shamans have a lineage. Ideally, like there's masters who pass it down, right? And and uh, and therapists, you know, they they have certifications because like, you're working with inner realities. But if you just decide that you're going to be a, a revival Pentecostal pastor who somehow has some spiritual gift to bring demons out of people, well, who's to say that you're the you're a clean practitioner of that? Mm-hmm. And I think for that reason alone, I think to ha- push back on cessationism is probably safest in a world that's so driven by experience, ungrounded experience today. I think that's got to be the only answer. And so I understand the church's resistance to to some of these practices like yeah, no, put that put that fire back in the bottle. Like, leave that alone, right? That's that's what I would say, and it makes total sense to me. Yeah, as my thoughts usually do. 
<laughs> and I do want to say one thing because I love, I'm not going to say the church, but I love that church and I love the leadership. Yes. And it's possible that after I left that maybe that was addressed. I don't know. But at okay. that point, I stopped having peace with telling my daughter, yeah, you should go next Sunday. And I stopped having the desire to go myself. And mm-hmm. um but I don't know. It may have been addressed later as that continued to unfold. And I'm also, you know, I've studied revivals before mm-hmm. and there, there are revivals that went on for just months and months and months. And everybody that came experienced the Holy spirit and they repented, they received salvation, they received healings. And, you know, um, I'm sure that at times during that, there may have been some things that were manifesting that someone may have judged. And maybe that's, that's what I'm doing now, but it's also, you know, it's also kind of, uh, it's also a reality that I believe was true whenever I was observing that. And I felt it in my heart and soul. And I believe that God was showing me that it was a spiritual mating call to people that were in that room. And there wasn't a Mm -hmm. leader describing what was happening. Um, Right. But yes, yeah, definitely interesting. Mark. Well, with that, I mean, in those moments when we get these sort of snap judgments that happen faster than our own our own ability to consciously process, I think we have to trust that. That doesn't necessarily mean we need to say that definitively that is an objective reality. But one way or another, it was a lesson for you about what's possible in that environment. So whether it was actually a spiritual main call, who can ever know? But mm-hmm. it introduced the notion of that stuff to you to be aware of. And so I think that's, it's safe enough to say that that's real without having to say like that woman or whatever. But I, I, I hear what you're saying and I agree with you. I agree with you that it was sort of, um, that it was, uh, not properly held. If you felt that that amount of darkness come from it, um, then, you know, who knows, who knows what purpose it served in the room beyond that. Right. So hmm. as you, so as you think about this church and as you think about your experiences, you know, with, with psychedelics and as you think about um, some of the people that you're beginning to meet and talk to and, and the state of the church today overall, um, you know, where do you, where does, where does all this fit into your life? What's you've mentioned that you have a, some sort of practices, you have, you have guys over to your house on Saturdays and you, you, you read the Bible before, um, before your work day with your home builders like how does this how does this take shape uniquely within your own particular um faith life um yeah i've i've tried going to churches um and that that one uh was the best one that i had found at least for me <clears throat> and this what i would like to say is that it's very very possible that the issue is me um mm-hmm. and brave yeah, it's uh, because there isn't a perfect church anywhere. Um, right. And uh, on, I'll send you this podcast that Paul Leitner did, but uh, there's a guy, Andy Squires, that he does. He's a, a pastor and a um, poet, a singer, and he has some things I disagree with, but he's so honest with his expression that he, I, that I love, that I love it. And he said, you know, go to a church 
that isn't good. The pastor doesn't, you don't always agree with the pastor. The worship is not very good. They're not in rhythm. They don't sing well. The potluck has the same thing every week. They're going Mm. to fail you. They're going to hurt you and stay in that church for 10 years because that's what we're called to, you know, as opposed to me, I'm like, man, you know, go there for two months. I'm like, well, and I've always justified it by saying, well, if I see an issue in a church, and I think it's because I can be a natural born leader. And if I'm in a space and I see something that I disagree with, I usually would go to the leadership and be like, Hey, right. Like, honestly, you just said this in the sermon and you were saying it was in the Bible. Here's the Bible. Can you show it to me? You know? And, and that's what I would do. And by the way, my name is Paul. Nice yeah. to meet you. And so I, I realized like my, if I stay in a church that it would have a potential to divide a church because of the nature of who I am, of like how I ask a question. And mm-hmm. that is, that's not, I'm like, this church exists just fine without me. And I'm mm-hmm. good in my relationship with God right now, but we are called uh, my wife's um, family and her dad, especially are always like, Paul, it says not to forsake the assembly. And so, you know, my wife and I have uh, gone to a couple different churches, but each time I kind of felt that same thing. It's like, man, if I stay here, it could create division and I don't want to do that. And I'm good with reading the Bible and praying with my wife and listening to worship music. And, but to be a part of a body, I found we've been doing this now, the home group for, I guess like going on two months, two and a half months. And it's fulfilled a different part of my life. And it's wonderful. It's small right now. And uh, maybe like, the max people have been there, maybe like 25, 30 people is the max. And usually it's like, you know, 12 to 15 and we're literally just getting God's word and read and then pray for each other and talk about our lives and worship God and have a couple of musicians that play and it's a family and it's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. Uh, the church in America, man, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's so interesting. I, so one, I'll tell a story that kind of is a reflection of that. And I met a guy, I was driving from Stephenville to Heiko when I used to work at Barefoot Market running a smoothie shop for six years. And I passed this homeless dude and uh, he had a backpack on and on the backpack was a big old poster uh, cardboard and in big letters it said proof uh, for the existence of God. And so I drove by him and uh, the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, just pull that, pull over and, you know, invite that dude out for dinner. And so I just kept on driving. I was like, ah, I just worked. <laughs> I had to go work on my house and hike while I was building. It was a nice day. I was like, I'm just going to go work on the house. And so probably like three different times while driving, the Holy Spirit like kind of convicted my heart. And he's like, no, go like pull over, turn wow. around. And so the third time <clears throat> I was just like, man, and you, I mean, it used to be that I was just a hundred percent always immediately respond to that, but I had started to override it a little bit um, at a certain point in his long story. But uh, so I turned around, picked the guy up. <clears throat> he used to be a, uh, I believe it was a chemical engineer and God kind of told him, gave him a message to give to the world and he forsake, forsook everything that he had on material possessions. He was single. And um, he, I took him out to dinner and we started talking. And he, I mean, any part of the Bible that we talked about, he would just like, instead of him talking, he would quote the Bible. 
he would almost like he'd like almost memorize like so many parts of the Bible that his language was never like here's my own philosophy or here's you know this or that. It's like here's what God's word says on that subject, mm-hmm. and he would just speak the Bible into me. And I was like, wow, this is. If you ever want to hear someone who's a powerful speaker, they nor they will just quote the Bible. And you're like, wow, that right. guy is so wise and deep. And it's like I'm quoting the Bible, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, that was my conversations with him, and I said, well, do you go to church? And he, he looked at me and it was the only time he looked at me, he was like, kind of like, I hadn't seen it yet or hadn't figured it out yet because I like to deep dive immediately into conversations. And he could tell that we were kind of on the same page with things. He's like, demons run 99% of the churches in America. He's like, yeah. you can't go into a church right now and there not be demonic influence from the pulpit or in the congregation that's affecting the whole church. And he was just so absolutely clear about that, that... I was like, wow, okay, this is interesting. Here's a guy traveling. He's given up everything he owns to go and talk to God about, talk to people about God and Jesus. And he has this one page printout of a revelation that God gave him on a story that's going to prove it. And he just goes to campuses and the homeless stations and he just ministers to people and loves on them. He stayed with me for a couple of days. And, um, yeah, it was so interesting, but that was his perspective. Uh, and if I go into churches, like I had a, I had a meeting the other day with uh, the pastor of a church that I stopped going to, not because I, I'm not even. There's not even a reason, really. It's just like I. And then I said, I'm going to seek counsel. I'm thinking about starting a home group. And this pastor actually liked his posture as a pastor. Pastor, He was vulnerable. He had wisdom. Um, I believe he cared for his audience. He loved Jesus. And so I said, I'm going to seek counsel. I said, we're going to start this home group up. And uh, I would like to get, you know, some wise counsel from you on steps that we could take or what to look for. And he said, well, I just tell you one thing. And that's that I wouldn't do it. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. okay. All right. And uh, he said, uh, Paul, can I ask you a pointed question? And I said, yeah, if you can have a question that offends me, that's the one I want you to ask me. Please, yes. And uh, he said, okay. He said, what is your issue with the church? Like, why do you think you have to start your own church? Like, what's the issue with any of the churches that exist right now? And I said, oh, that's that's an excellent question. I appreciate it. And if I can have the same candor in response as your question, um, I said, it feels like the highest level of pretend to me. And I said, in the last, wow. <clears throat> in the last eight places that I've lived, I've been friends with, I'm just naturally a, a person who develops friends. I like people a lot and I've developed friendships with pastors and, um, about five pastors have come to me after developing friendships with them and came to me with very deep spiritual issues that they were working through in their personal life that they couldn't go to their family with, they couldn't go to the deacons with, they couldn't go to their church body with, they couldn't go to their board with. So they had to go to somebody outside of their body in order to pray together and to be honest about a subject. And, you know, some of these were small churches, but some of them were the biggest churches in the town and they were the leaders of that. And for that Mm -hmm. For that to exist, that level of pretend is like everything is perfect. Let me preach again so you can exemplify my life. And then to realize what people are really dealing with, it's like uh, that's doesn't it doesn't match up to what a healthy body looks like. Is that the leader yeah. has to go outside the body to be honest, you know? 
And that's mm-hmm. where I started seeing like, man, I see all these things. I know the behind the scenes stuff, but everybody's smiling and putting on their pretty face. And, you know, it's, um, and having said all those things, I'm aware that what I'm creating now could fail and someone could judge it. And maybe that's just what we all get to live in, um, is, is, is non-perfection and the understanding of God's grace in that and God's love in that. Um, and that's the process I'm in right now. Um, that's just kind of where I'm at. That makes total sense to me. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of rules in, I don't want to just say just Christianity. I think it's spirituality in general as well that, um, that apply to the, the broad spectrum of humanity and they're kind of intended to. At the same time, the, the, the dynamic that, excuse me, the dynamic that you talk about is real, that if you are a man that has leadership potential and feels called to leadership, that's a, that is a gift that is not given to every man. It has, it comes with its own specific set of burdens, which is why all this, you know, in the masculinity space, all this alpha talk is crap mm-hmm. because it's like, it's being, being alpha or whatever, being a, a leader is, is not a, is not a gift. It's, it's, it's a, it's a heightened amount of responsibility and not, and some men just want to belong. So, you know, to sort of take away some of the, some of the value judgments associated with it. But if that calling is on you and, and that's, that is an energy that men embody. Right. And so as you embody that energy, it will naturally attract itself to you. And if you feel yourself being in conflict with the, uh, uh, we might say, elected leader, let's say, like the pastor, it's his church. And if you have this own leadership energy, you know, that will, that will naturally um, accrete to you, there's conflict that could come there. And you can, you can feel that pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, there have been, I haven't experienced this in my church. I'm quite happy in my church. And we'll talk about that later. But, um, where I've been and I've come into men's groups and, uh, you know, I have my own men's group that I'm, I'm a leader of. I've been leader of other groups as well. I come into this group and I see that there's a leader guy and I don't agree with him and how he's asserting his leadership. And I could tell right away, there's going to be conflict here <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to win. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I've been there. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to break this group. I'll just leave. Right. <laughs> like you guys can. And so I know that. Feel. Now, the thing is, is you can't just say that to people because then everyone will begin like I'm some Sigma Alpha chat or whatever, like right. that, that whole meme begins to develop. But the thing is, is that's very real. And, and ultimately, you need to find a space and, and we as men need to find spaces that um, we need to really b- be discerning in ourselves. Like, oh, is this is this some sort of pride? Is this some sort of ego or whatever that, that be really critical with ourselves about that? And if we, if it checks out with our conscience to say like, yeah, no, this is just kind of the math. Then I think it's completely appropriate for men that feel that leadership call to put themselves into a leadership position. And I think that's as much submitting to the, to the body or submitting to authority as if you were to just kind of going to join a church that you were half-heartedly in. Cause I don't know that that glorifies God to say like, you know what, I go to this church on Sundays and I'm there for an hour and a half and I'm kind of singing and then I leave. That doesn't glorify God at all to be right. to be meaninglessly obedient. But if you can build a thriving, happy home church, you know, that lifts uh, the people who come, that lifts up the people who come, that lifts you up and that you can create an environment that you glorify God in, you know, I think in that, I think in that specific set of circumstances, like, yeah, do it. Now it's a pastor's job to question you on that as mm-hmm. well he should and it's also like you're opening to be open to be questioned questioned on it but ultimately you know if, if we're that's what if that's what we're trying to do is glorify god you choose the route that best does that and if you throw yourself wholeheartedly into a home church with 30 people 
who, you know, who all walk away glowing after services on whatever Sunday or Saturday, whenever you do it, gosh, I, I can't see that as being a bad thing. I can't see God looking down and be like, mm, no, you should have joined this other church. Sorry. Like that's sort of, there's gotta be room for individual, um, let's say intuition or experience or discernment in, in the, in the guidance that we take from scripture. Hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's it's. It, I think that's important because it is. There is a lot of, and I think what what the church struggles with today, and perhaps always has. I have to think about that. Um, is is at what point do you follow the rules, and at what point do you take some amount of license or liberty to break the rules for higher purpose? And <laughs> I think I think where where Christianity really struggles is because the stakes are so high. Um, and we're all dealing with this nebulous realm of God's will that we can never fully understand, <laughs> you know, which mm-hmm. by design, you know, the, 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 the penalty, I guess you might say for breaking the rules incorrectly is so high, it disincentivizes risk, risk taking. Um, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it can lead to this stultification. And so at what point do men begin to ask questions like, well, how can we begin pushing on the rules a little bit in a way to see what the boundaries really are with with the the knowledge that we have today? And that's where the all the information that we've learned about psychology in the past hundred years, about psychedelics and the mystical experience in the past hundred years, might actually have something important to say. That doesn't mean, hey, we're all going to take mushrooms in church on Sunday, but I think that there's room for a dialogue there, um, which is perhaps yeah. opening up. Yeah, and that's yeah, I've wrestled with that big time. <laughs> yeah big time and there's there's a couple of things and there's the part of the book uh that i wrote that was the longest chapter and i think the book is 84 pages it's a very short read um the book was 120 pages before i took the chapter out and <clears throat> the title of the chapter is uh should a christian eat mushrooms and i wrestled <laughs> with god on that subject because all right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go for it. All right, here's the go wrestling match. Um, have a friend married, has a wife, beautiful couple. They have a child. Uh, they love Jesus. She, when she was 12, had tumors in her brain, cancerous tumors. Mm. They drilled the into, child. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, uh, the wife. Uh, okay. When she was 12 years old, had tumors in her brain drilled into her skull uh they were able to remove one mm. and i believe the other two they used uh chemotherapy drip system and <clears throat> eliminated those she healed her brain of cancer uh but the chemotherapy affected her brain to where uh she her brain chemistry couldn't produce uh dopamine and serotonin in a natural way and so she oh, remained wow. in a state of depression and yeah uh, so she battled depression from the age of 12 to, I guess they might've got married around 24, 25. And I've known my friend, uh, for over a decade, uh, his dad was my coach in high school and coached us to some state championships. And so we have a long history of friendship and, um, 
he's like a rock, a solid guy. And <clears throat> his wife uh, deals with depression and yeah. has contemplated, has been so deep and intense that she's contemplated the worst possible choice to make it end, you know? And this is someone who, when she's not in the state of depression, is just beautiful and fun and full of life and laughing and praying with people and loving God and volunteering for things. But when she's in that state of depression, you know, bedridden, crying for days, not being able yeah. to be a good mother in the right way. And um, it's mm -hmm. really hard. And so from the age of 12 on, she's had a full faith that praying could heal her. I've prayed with them both several times for healing. I know probably hundreds of people throughout the last 20 years have prayed for her to heal and there hasn't been healing. And simultaneously, she sought out the best doctors in the world to prescribe um, you know, medications for depression. And mm -hmm. she said that most of them help for the first week or two weeks. And then it usually makes it worse. Like it compounds the yeah. issue. And all of a sudden she's dealing with the, you know, the side effects that they say like 85 words a second at the end of a thing. And so mm -hmm. if the side effect of a medicine is, you know, suicide, hallucination, dizziness, nausea, diarrhea, you know, if those are the side effects and those are, you know, compounded on top of having depression, if the medicine fails, like, and if there is something growing out of the ground that God created, and then he actually created the 5-HTP2A uh, receptor in our body to be able to have a relationship with a mushroom, process the psilocybin, turn it into psilocin, can actually affect brain chemistry, can help uh, balance brain chemistry in a natural way from a substance that God created from the ground um, that we have made a law against somehow within the last 50 years of human existence that now we can't participate in God's creation. Like, is mm -hmm. it wrong to consider microdosing mushrooms, not to create a hallucinatory effect, but to balance brain chemistry? Is that wrong as a Christian to consider that when we're open to a, a synthetic um, pharmacia form of medication that is not mm. from God, maybe? you know, mm -hmm. um, that maybe is a desire to get people addicted and to keep them on that pill their entire life, you know? Yeah. And so that's the, really the thing that I wrestle with the most, man, is like, it, like when, like where as a Christian should my understanding fall on things that put laws on God's creation? And also just understanding how God made our bodies and how he made nature. And, you know, the fact that it would have never even existed as a question a hundred years ago from the beginning of creation to a hundred years ago, it would have never even been a thought in someone's mind as far as it being a sin, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I believe there's a proper use and there's an abuse for everything, you know, yeah. uh, I have pecan trees on my property and, uh, you know, if I don't soak the pecans, release the enzyme inhibitors, and I just eat a bunch of pecans, like if I eat two pounds of pecans, my stomach's going to be in tremendous pain later this afternoon. And that is an abuse of eating pecans. Like, it's not like my mm -hmm. God created my body to eat pecans, but I'm not supposed to eat two pounds of them in an afternoon. Um, and so right. it's like I can be wise or unwise in how I approach my relationship with God's creation. And I believe that that can apply to mushrooms because there's been lots of studies showing that it, they can be very healing for anxiety, depression, PTSD. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not suggesting the heroic dose or the hallucinatory, like, you know, take five grams. I'm 
suggesting like let's explore as Christians if there can be a medicinal value to God's creation and we can use it wisely. Why would we hesitate? Why would, mm-hmm. you know why like literally why? Um, um, and I can look at lots of reasons, but I mean I, I know exactly what you mean though. Yeah, and then the other one is <clears throat> recently uh, we've had. This one is a deeper one. This one I didn't even express in the thing, and I'm not. I'm gonna let me just pray in my spirit whether or not, okay. I'm gonna talk about it, but in a vague, specific way, which you'll see. No names or, but there's basically been sure. a lot of people that I know that have had challenges in their marriage, and some of the marriages have ended, and the, um, they're all Christians, um, mm. and in. I've gone to, <laughs> got, gone to some of them and said, you know, I'll fast with you. I'll pray with you. And, and that didn't happen. And so, and then praying with them, it didn't solve anything. And then going to church didn't solve anything and doing therapy didn't solve anything. And I'm just watching these marriages disintegrate uh, in front of me and having been through, <laughs> and you know this too, having been through the process of eating uh, taking psychedelics and it producing a very profound interchange that shows you your stance uh, and where you're right, where you're wrong, the things you're holding on to, the things that um, you need to face. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that maybe if they went and ate mushrooms for an afternoon, that couple in the woods with someone with them, they would pray with them and bring them some oranges and water and, you know, ask them some questions and read Bible verses over them. Like, would their marriage heal in one afternoon? And I would say that a high percentage of them would. And that is perhaps Mm -hmm. the most dangerous thought that I could have. And I almost don't even want to say it. But after seeing a number of marriages fail in the last two years that were Christian-based, I'm just like, if prayer is not working, if church isn't working, if therapy isn't working, if all these things that are supposed to be working, if we're Christians, aren't working, is it going to harm anything to <laughs> go and do that in the, like, uh, and that's, that's hard for me because the thing about taking a psychedelic is there's an unknown outcome. Like there can be a high percentage of the time where, you know, it's very beneficial, it's growth inspiring, there's different levels of awareness achieved, breakthroughs, etc. But then I've seen the people that have literally gone insane, that have opened up the portals and couldn't come back, yeah. that invited uh, spirits in that took over their lives and um, mm-hmm. they weren't in control anymore. And so that to me is the part of that experience that is dangerous and I don't have any comfort at all in suggesting it, but it's still a thought that I think about in having had my own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will say is I've never, I have known people that have microdosed and I microdose like basically like five days a week for two years. And um, like I was always in control of my thoughts. All I wanted to do was work out. Um, all I want to do is be outside in the sun, drinking lots of water. And my thoughts were clear. Um, and it, it didn't have any detrimental effect on me to take a small amount of them. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that is, uh, that is the thing that I believe that I would have comfort with and peace with in encouraging, uh, if there's ever something I had peace with, it would be, yeah, let's, let's explore, you know, in a controlled environment uh, with people who are educated on the matter, you know, helping people by using very small amounts of 
mushrooms medicinally to help them with specific things. And, uh, and I've had to really wrestle with that because of propaganda, yeah. because of indoctrination, because of laws, because of the culture we live in, because mm -hmm. of Richard Nixon making it illegal, um, because it was threatening the America he was trying to create. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting subject as a Christian in today's modern reality to wrestle with that question in an honest way. Men, I'll cut right to it. There's probably something missing from your life, and I bet you don't even know. And that is a mission or purpose. A mission is more than a job, a career, or even a vocation or hobby. It's bigger than that. It's a godly pursuit that underlies all your most significant thoughts, words, and actions. If you seek to lead your family and your household, your purpose is the direction you're leading yourself in, and therefore your family undertakes the journey with you. Your purpose takes you beyond yourself, challenges you to expand your self-concept, confront your fears, acquire new skills, forge durable bonds of friendship and brotherhood, and most importantly, helps you contribute to the rebuilding of civilization. If that sounds too good to be true, it isn't. Because your purpose is a gift. But here's the catch. To receive that gift, you must be ready for it. And that is the nature of my coaching. I'm a man who has been blessed with a purpose. And it's more than just this podcast. I've got something I'm working on behind the scenes that I know you're going to love. And pursuing that purpose has taught me the secrets of what it takes to cultivate the purpose. Now I want to pass it on to you. Having a purpose has changed my life and I think it can change yours too. And to do that, we have work to do. If you're interested in learning more, the content on my website is currently being updated to reflect my new program. In the meantime, email me at info at renofmen.com to start the conversation and schedule a free 30-minute consultation. Mention the code word PURPOSE and I'll offer 10% off a 12-week package. I'll also let you in on my top secret purpose behind the scenes so you can see that I know what I'm talking about. Once again, email me at info at renofmen.com and mention the code PURPOSE to get 10% off a 12-week package. I started the Renaissance of Men to help men become the best versions of themselves through self-knowledge. If that sounds like you or the version of yourself you want to be, email me and let's get started. I hear I hear all of that and I, and I agree with you. And I, I think in that frame there's a, the, as i think about this and just in my own life i think that there are a lot of things that are kind of all being conflated uh, not by you necessarily but conflated together so first of all if you're in uh if, if you're experiencing these marriages that are dissolving and prayer and therapy aren't working um then your therapist sucks right because <laughs> Right. Period. Yeah. I feel pretty comfortable. Pretty, like, like, have them talk to me. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but so let's start there. And the second, it, it depends. And, and prayer isn't working. Um, I can't really say, but like, I, I think that um, there's also some room for, um, if, if it's, for example, the pastor that's leading the prayer, that maybe the pastor isn't able to tap into some deeper realities. Because what I, what I experience going on with people who who have real challenges in their lives particularly relationally it's that either the man or the woman or both don't have access or or refuse right they they, they don't have access meaning like they can't get there or they just won't go there to their inner emotional realities and and there's a reason for that like our our brains are very um wonderfully designed to compartmentalize um emotional trauma from childhood to keep the conscious mind functioning. It may function at a low level, 
but it functions at a survival level and because it by walling off trauma that it can't process that's that's what our brain does that's why we survive childhood because if we we, we all go through childhood trauma welcome to earth that's part right. of it like mm-hmm. you, you have a sense oversensitive brain that's the, that's the developing mind and so trauma happens and that can be capital t trauma for example abuse neglect or whatever or it can be little t trauma such as being scared or it can be any number of things the mind walls that energy explosion off and locks it away in the body somewhere and so then a wall is built between your conscious mind and your subconscious okay so as we grow the layers begin forming over the onion and the trauma gets buried deeper and deeper as the surface goes up but those the, that trauma response guides our thoughts and behaviors and begins primarily shows up in relationally primarily in romantic relationships but in almost any circumstances so the thing is to in 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 my view to really begin healing re- relational um I don't want to say disagreements because it's more than that, but to begin healing relational challenges with the individual, it's necessary to move through that wall into what's really going on at a deep level. Now, therapy, really expertly done therapy, which I've been very blessed to experience, can do that. But you need a really great therapist, you need a really willing participant, and um, and you need um, you need a lot of a lot of patience and, and willingness to get there. But you can. Um, prayer, uh, I, prayer can do it, but the, the prayer has to have a quality from the depth of emotional reality of the person leading it. So if the pastor is very surface is like, you know, Jesus, I just want to pray that, you know, come into his heart and you can feel that's not really resonating on a deep level, you right. know, cause we're tuning forks with each other. Yep. So if it's that kind of prayer, it's not going to work mm-hmm. in those circumstances. Why psychedelics work is it it opens up that wall to allow what's in to come out mm-hmm. and, and you know you get past you don't have conscious volition over it now that can be really good or really bad and so there's there's this notion of the people that are trying to lead people in when you might say a sober state into that realm aren't particularly very good at it right? so there's that um, and it's true there are very few really ex- excellent expert non-biased non-dogmatic therapists especially their most therapists now will view anything relational between a man and a woman as ultimately it's the man's fault and the woman is default right. Mm. That's a real problem. <laughs> um, pastors I can't speak for. But the, but you make also a really good point that these psychedelic technologies, let's call them, do have enormous healing potential. And our brains were designed to respond to chemicals that are in the mushrooms. Like mm-hmm. If God didn't, wa- didn't right. want our brains to respond to mushrooms – <laughs> why did he put those things in our brains? Right. Or why did he put the mushrooms there? He allowed it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it does open up the series of questions where it's like, well, how can we use this technology in in, a, in an appropriate way? But we also, but when as I think about this myself, we also live in in a, in a world where people will look to anything for uh, for um, a quick solution. Where this this hyper experiential culture, this uh, you know addictive culture. You know where the the risk of using it for the individual to become irresponsible with it is so high that maybe maybe on a broad scale we're just not responsible enough to use this yet, and and I and I think there's a case to be made that you know like with the Pentecostal like you're kind of playing with fire, mm. and and so who's holding it? How is the how is the the we'll call it a ceremony broadly or ritual or whatever you want to call it. How is this being done? Who's doing it? What's their ethic? What's their, what, what's their, what's their practice? Um, you know, are they, are, why are, what are, what's their intention? All these things. 
without answering those questions or without having a good collective answer to those questions, the potential for abuse by the practitioner and by the recipient is so high. And I'll, and I'll even, I'll even tie this into, um, and just discussions of sexuality, because I think psychedelics and sexuality kind of go together. It's like there's so much there's so much out there about um, about sexual about human sexuality now that didn't exist a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. But I find, but and and these are sexual. We'll, we'll call them practices. It's because I don't really like that word, but information that could really bless the 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 sexual partnerships of so many married couples, particularly in the church. But the church doesn't know how to talk about them. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no books on on like. How do we how do we take this knowledge about body and and, and and sexual pleasure and give it to married couples that need it? It's like more hands off of that for yeah. the same reason because it's playing with fire mm-hmm. and and I, I think there there how do you even begin to approach something like that? You don't you don't because you do you want to put that in the hands of a pastor? Right. No, do you want to? And so it's, it's it's all this thing that and I think the only answer is just evolution. Like I think like meaning human consciousness progress in learning how to grapple with these things in a moral way i think and, and that's a patience thing so that's my that's my perspective on the whole thing because you can't just give this to a pastor or a deacon or whatever and and, and cross your fingers they're right. gonna do a good job with it right yeah and the church is this is this ties into what you're saying and i feel like it's necessary and it but it's not directly you know in correlation, but it does touch on it. Um, the, I believe the biggest challenge that the church and Christianity has right now are going to be the youth from ages 13 to 26. Um, and the reason being is that we live in such a sexualized america like i literally can't open any part of my computer without there at least being oh here's a car oh well what's in front of the car what's a girl washing Mm -hmm. it okay well let me get on facebook (laughs) marketplace oh you want these jeans well here's a girl's butt are you looking for jeans here's a girl it's like and you literally can't open your computer now without having some sort of sexual influence in what you're seeing you can't even drive like you can't even drive into dallas right now without seeing like four billboards with nearly naked girls on them and yeah, you know, even I mean, you'd have to put like you'd have to literally be blind and, and leave the radio off and never walk by a TV to like not have your helmet of salvation be affected by outside stimulus. Um, yeah, insane. And that didn't exist a hundred years ago. There wasn't radio. There wasn't TV. Uh, there weren't um, you know anything that was like pornographic in nature was like super hidden, repressed, like in your grandpa's closet underneath the bed, one copy that it had like for 50 years or something. And now it's just everywhere. Yeah. But, and then we've also, we've changed the expectation of marriage to her in biblical times, getting married at age 12 to 15 was common. Like they learned how to be adults and they went and they started having kids at 14 and they had a farm and that was just in biblical times. And as we've uh, historically, as we've, continued to grow um we have found that that expectation even 100 years ago like you know 16 18 years old was common uh and so that means like if you hit puberty at 12 or 13 then for two or three years you get to wrestle with lust you know and these Mm -hmm. hormones that your body's producing but now we have an expectation from a christian perspective uh that okay let's say you have a child and they go through puberty at age 12 or 13 now you're going to ask them 
if they get married and they finish college, like the perfect dream, and we're going to ask them, yeah, okay, once you find the perfect mate and you get married at 24 to 26 or something, you're going to go through the height of your um, productive ability. So the strongest mm-hmm. that your body will ever be, the most hormones that your body will ever produce as far as like the desire to have sex. And we're going to ask you to go like a decade and not ever do anything about them. And then whenever it starts to drop a little bit, then you can get married, you know? And it's like, we that's like a deep question that has not been addressed that I've ever seen. Yep. And it's like nearly impossible. Like, yep. I, I mean, like, I mean, like literally, like I, I've had this, I have a friend and he's young, he's at A&M, just one of those kids is like, where are you in the world? We need more of you. Like, I remember at 16, mm-hmm. I asked him, I was like, what are your favorite things to do when I first met him? He's like, man, I just love to get in the word. I was like, what? Like, like, you're 16. What do you mean? The way you said that. I was like, wow. I was like, what do you mean you love to get in the word? He's like, yeah, I just love to get it. I was like, well, that, that's amazing. I've just never heard a 16 year old say that, you know? So that yeah, kind yeah, of right. heart. And, um, you know, going to A&M and he, he came to me and he was almost crying. And, uh, you know, he's probably 19 or 20 at the time. We've developed a good friendship. And, uh, he goes, Paul, I need prayer. He goes, I can't stop thinking about girls and like not in the good way. And I mean, yeah. A&M, you know, in the summertime, you're talking like, you know, thousands of cuties walking around in short shorts and like bathing suits at yeah. parties and people drinking yeah. and they're like flirting with you. It's like, how are you going to, even if you're a strong Christian man, which he is, like, how do you stop, like, how do you stop your brain in those situations? How do you stop your natural impulses and the hormones that God's put into your body from having a reaction to that? And it's, I would say we've created a reality where it's almost impossible nigh and absolutely just like work of God, miraculous work of God to help you override the desire to masturbate or look at pornography or, and even then yeah. you're probably body's producing so much hormones. You're probably going to have wet dreams, you know, if you, mm-hmm. and so it's like, we, that's something that I think really needs to be addressed. And I don't know if there's an immediate answer for it, but it's a very real thing and it's a trap. And, We've created the trap for our youth as a society with expectations of marriage and age and how we let our children mature and what we teach them. Um, and, you know, it's it's a really hard subject. Um, yeah. Well, I want to say something to, uh, to you that I've never said to anybody else. My thoughts on this subject is that uh, age is a psyop. Like I, I really, I really believe that like, okay, well, you know, you're, you're zero to 12 and you'll be like this and then you're a teenager and then you're in high school and then the high school is going on and then you go right. to college, yep. you know, it's like these phases of life and then you're in your twenties and then your thirties and then you can get married. That's a psyop. Yep. That is absolutely a psyop. That is not how we're designed. This notion of this artificial extended, extending of this adulthood when, you know, a hundred, 200 years ago, when you're 13, congratulations, you're working in the field with dad. If, if that old, you know, and then at 16, when the hormones kick on, you know, you're in your village or you're in your small town and there's that one other girl over there. And that's the girl that that's for you. That's the one for you. And then you guys get married so that you guys can have sex. And at the peak of your, at the peak of your fertility and your hormones, you're producing lots of babies. Congratulations. Welcome to humanity. But now 
we have this whole extended, well, you've got to spend four years in high school. And then when you get to high school, you have to spend at least four years in college. And then you go to graduate school. And then, of course, you have to build up your career. And you you, know, mm-hmm. you, should, you should probably not get married until you're 30 or 35 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you've taken something that should happen at age 16, 18 at the latest, and you've tacked 20 years onto it. And in that 20 years, what do you get to do? You get to throw all these values at people, partying, sex, et cetera, you know, that wouldn't have had the opportunity to be there. Because if you're having kids at 16, 18, 20 even, you know, you don't have the option to party and blow all your money. You've got kids, you've got a <laughs> wife to support, right? Yeah. And so, so we have this notion that's been implanted into our minds and, and it's completely contemporaneous. It didn't exist more than 50, 60 years ago, if that. You know, probably, actually, if you were to think about it, what college didn't really truly become a thing until what, the 50s or the 60s? So let's say 70 years where we have, we're born and from age five, this entire framework of our life is driven into our head of like how things will progress along the factory assembly line of modern industrial society. And when you look at it, you see just how far we are away from God's design for us, mm-hmm. right? And, and you, it, it, once, you, once I started seeing that and started asking like, well, we got to unwire all of that. And what's it all for? It's all for economic production. It's not for the benefit of the, of the individual human organism, the human being. Mm-hmm. It's not a benefit for men or for, especially not for women. And we can talk a lot about feminism as well as being a root cause of all this. Like, well, obviously we have to let women, you know, go do whatever they're going to do until they're done doing it. So we have to, you know, create all these social structures that enable that, which is a whole rabbit hole we can go down. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it serves, I think there's enough, there's ample evidence in, in uh, what it, what's March, 2022, that none of this has made anyone happier. It doesn't serve right. anybody. It just ends up to people wanting to destroy more. It hasn't made women more women or men more men. It's made men and women miserable. And you see it at a younger and younger age. And there is no argument. There is no argument that this Marxist, you know, uh, neo-capitalist way of living serves anybody. And the proper response to it is Christianity and God's design. And they don't like hearing that, which Mm -hmm. means it's even more the right answer. But I think we've really touched on something really important here where it's like, once you get to the root of, of sexuality and sex, you begin to see just how toxic and destructive our environment is and just how anti-human it is. And it all comes back to the exact subjects you're talking about, that there's a certain age of a fertile reproduction, energy, life, vitality, vigor that's appropriate for bringing children into the world and creating prosperity for them. And yet we don't get to enjoy that because we're too busy squandering it on booze and parties and meaningless casual sex. And and we wake up somewhere in our mid thirties, like, okay, well, I guess we should probably have kids <laughs> sort of on some sort of sense of downswing. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's welcome to earth nowadays. And it's absolutely messed up. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, usually I'm good at thinking outside the box and saying like, here's a great solution, but you know, we've created a reality where it's like, if my great solution is that 14 and 16 year olds get married, that's not a good solution right now. Because well, no, had, not you can't. I mean, it's <laughs> no. like, they don't, they don't even like, anyway, they, there's, a, some of them are amazing, a very small percentage of them have a, an awareness of an adult, but most 14 to 16 year olds are not adults is what I'll say. Um, no. Not even well, because their parents aren't either, right? right? So it's like 14 and 16-year-olds and 18-year-olds could get married in the past because their parents were adults. But now you have parents that have that were the 14 and 16-year-olds that are grown children. Mm-hmm. They can't lead their children into adulthood because they themselves aren't adults. So it's a whole contextual thing, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, good, good side category subject. I like that. Um, nice. Yeah, I mean, we have to we have to reimagine we have to reimagine society almost totally to make this possible. Which you know, I don't want to say that we've made the world this way. The world was I inherited this world. I didn't make the world this way, and I'm like waking mm-hmm. up from it. Like, oh, I didn't put myself in the Matrix pod. The ma- I was yeah. born into it, and you yeah. know, I think I think these questions need to be asked. Like, well, if this is what society is going to impose on us, maybe we'll just casually like you guys have that world just be over here. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's interesting to think, like, I think the only thing that would ever kind of reverse engineer the programming that we've had in society is if the grid collapsed. And I I don't want the grid to collapse because I enjoy creature comforts and I don't want to hand pump my well. And uh, I kind of like hot showers in the winter and, you know, mm-hmm. um, but within probably five to 10 years, if there was all the grid went down and we couldn't come back up within five to 10 years, I believe we would as a society be back to the place where it's like, okay, yeah, you're 14. Like since the age of three, you've been helping me in the garden. You helped with the cows. Like you understand how to travel on horseback to somewhere 10 miles away to trade for some salt. Um, Yeah. You're not playing video (laughs) games for like, 12 hours a day and like complaining yeah. about your food not being right from McDonald's or something, you know, it, it, like kids would be ready again at 14 to 16 or 18 to, to, to be married and have a maturity and a work ethic and an understanding of reality. Um, but the, the things that we've said yes to and co-created, uh, it's a comfortable reality, but it comes with its own trappings. And these are, these are the trappings, you know? Yeah. And to me, the question comes down to one of institutions, because I don't see any reason that we couldn't build that world now, but we don't have control of the, like the institutions that have that, mm. that are real thing. Institutional power is real, enforces the set of values on, let's say, American society, you know, mm-hmm. media, government, law, finance, et cetera. It's all, it's all forcing this kind of vision on society. Now, if men like you and me and your 16-year-old friend at A&M and, and and you know TJ and people we knew took control of the institutions and shifted the message coming through yeah. the institutions, right? But fighting for fighting for control of the institutions, it's a it's it would seem that it's a losing battle. So the alternative is to build our own institutions to fight institution versus <clears throat> versus institution, right? Which you know that's a discussion, mm-hmm. or whether we just abandon the institutions altogether to go create our breakaway society and let these other institutions either collapse under the weight of their own incompetence which is a grid down situation or swallow the earth, which, right. you know, that would be like, you know, matrix. Mm-hmm. And these are the futures that we're dealing with. Yeah. Right? And it's exciting to talk about because we're mm-hmm. kind of like at that cusp of like, something's going to happen <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> what's interesting is uh, this morning uh, I have the line to event coming up on uh, March 26th and uh, I've been text messaging certain people and this morning and last night, I just started thinking, how do I get, you know, 14 to 23 year olds at this event. Um, Mm -hmm. Because if I'm going to have a hundred topics that are explored over the next two years, and all those topics have tremendous value for survival, for thriving, for um, just a skill set that can keep you alive and provide for you and your family and 
how do I make that cool for a 14 to 23 year old to want to attend? Because there's very few of them that naturally have that desire to learn that right now. Um, and so yeah. I think that that I'm hoping that that is changing. Um, and, you know, I even texted some of the people that I know that are kind of like leaders that are that age group. And I was like, Hey, I'll give you a guest pass. I really feel like your age group right now just needs to be learning all the information that's at these events. You're not going to get it in college. You're not going to get it in high school. Um, come out to it. And they've responded favorably so far. So I'm hopeful. But it's almost like there we like at my age of 45, I feel like I'm a leader. I feel like in knowing you a short period of time, you're a leader. People like TJ mm. is a leader. It's almost like we need to start calling out the leadership in the younger generation right now. If, yes. If America is going to succeed uh, and make a comeback of any kind, um, which has a small percentage of chance right now, but I'm hopeful, uh, it needs the, the, that age group <clears throat> needs to step up in a major way and. The, the trappings for that age group are so big right now that it's almost like they've almost got complete control of them. Um, yes. I mean, I, like I know, I won't say names, but I know uh, people that I'm related to and I love and I'm friends with <clears throat> and people in that age group literally all day long on their phone or TV. TikTok. Like, this, yeah. like literally eight to 12 hours a day. And it's like, man, whew. Like how, yeah. like, how are we going to do anything if that's the reality that they're interfacing with eight to 12 hours a day? Um, mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's scary and sad, but um, at the same time, it's like, maybe it's just putting a fire underneath me to, uh, you know, because I've found that engaging uh, them and saying, Hey, get off your phone. And like, ah, well, yeah. But then like an hour later, if you know, you're building a fire in the woods and they're taking down some briars mm -hmm. and they get to burn them and see what fire is. And they get to use a chainsaw and sweat. And then all of a sudden at, yeah. at the end of the day, or they're in a good mood and they have a story to tell. And, you know, maybe it wasn't as easy or as entertaining or as enjoyable. Uh, but it's something I believe that is, is a desire a natural desire to experience. And so maybe it's just uh, the, the older leaders need to start opening up experiences and almost like forcing the younger kids to engage those, you know? Mm -hmm. Can I, can I pitch an idea to you? Go for it. I think what the younger generation is really missing is elders. Mm. So I think, I, th I think, um, and, and elder energy is a very particular kind of energy. So imagine you're like a 16 year old, right? And, you know, you, maybe you aspirationally look up to someone in their twenties, like, oh, that person's the coolest person in the world, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So that's one kind of relationship. But as you, as you, as you're a 16 year old, you look at 30 and 40 and 50 year olds, like, oh, that's just, that's just an adult. They don't understand. But an elder coming in, you know, with real gravitas, 60s, 70s, right, can speak to a 16-year-old, I think, more power. They have to have the gravitas. It's not just an old, not right. just an old person. Yeah. An old person and an elder are not the same thing. <clears throat> Has to have the gravitas to speak directly in, with wisdom into the heart of a 16-year-old because as, a, as, a, as I was taught a number of years ago, um, elders have metabolized the most experience. So, so they, ha they have a wisdom because they've metabolized their life mm -hmm. experience. And so I think what's really lacking is like, where are the elders in our society to be able to speak to the younger generation? And that closes the loop. 
you know, because right now we're in a very linear kind of situation where it's like, you know, our, our wisdom only extends to age 50 and we dismiss anyone over basically. But it's like, where are the people in their 60s and 70s that can actually speak to the younger generation, even going back to five years old, because right. it used to be our society was like children, young children would interact with grandparents while the parents were working. And I, I think that may be the missing piece that, hmm. um, that to, to look into perhaps. Yeah, I, I agree. And yeah, it's the, what you're saying, the, the gravitas is, it's an important aspect. <clears throat> and I, I love old people. I mean, I love them. I used to, when I used to do Toastmasters, we did it at this uh, nursing home. They had an open room that we could just use for free and practice speaking. And I would just show up like an hour early and sit with these old people in the rocking chairs and, uh, you know, outside and just watch the sunset. And they'd just be in silence, you know, mm -hmm. just like, just rocking. It's almost like they're watching time, like seeing time for what it was like for the first time and just like observing time, but so much wisdom in their silence, you know, they'd been through the breakups, the divorces, the child loss, the cancers, the wars, the great depressions, the, you know, whatever working 80 hours a week, they've been through that. And they're not yeah. telling everybody they're just sitting in silence and rocking. Um, but then there are some people that do tell. And I believe that most older people <clears throat> want to pass on their wisdom, but they have enough wisdom to know when they're wasting their energy or when it will be received. Mm -hmm. And the silence yeah. as a reflection comes from the lack of ears that are willing to hear and to apply the wisdom. And they're just seeing mm -hmm. that, you know. Um, so it's... It does need to, uh, does need, I'm not suggesting there's 80 year olds you need to get on TikTok, but <laughs> you know, right. uh, that seems to be the only way right now to reach the majority of them. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to consider, but I think, I think the solution is to just take phones away because once you take oh, away I, the screen, you're, yeah. And you have to get, you have to really give people the opportunity to like, well, you, to re-engage with reality. Yeah. I'm sending you. Okay. In the chat. Well, I'll just, while you're doing that, I'll just say that, you know, what, one of the things that I've thought a lot about in my own explorations of, uh, of masculinity has just been the notion of, uh, uh, oh yeah, sure. No problem. So I think a lot about, um, elders in, in my life and in the life cycle of men, and how, you know, we, especially in, in the world of, of masculinity, there's a lot of emphasis on um, a couple different phases of life. And so there's like the whole red pill alpha, like, you know, you're out there in the world and you're, you know, I don't agree with this lifestyle, but, you know, you're spinning plates and you're working out and you're getting dates and making money. And now, and you know, that was a whole thing for a while. And I think it was necessary in its own way. And now there's a whole push and a movement towards sovereignty, which is, family, faith, finances, um, fitness, and, and, ha and having some, um, having some amount of, of, of thing, like a productive household of your own. And I think that's the stage that men are kind of thinking about now. But one thing that I've kind of observed is there's not a lot of, um, contact yet. I don't want to say interest because I can't say, but interest in elders, like, what does it actually mean to be a 70 year old man? Like you're not awesome anymore. 
you know, like, like you can't run as fast and it's objectively right. true. And, you know, all the TRT in the world isn't ever, isn't going to get you there. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that phase. And, you know, like, but that has meaning because God didn't design us to just like die at 55. Like, congratulations, you've lived your productive life now. Bah. You know, it's like, no, you could potentially live for another 50 years or more after that. What does that back half of life mean? And I think that there's a phase of the men's movement is going to get there and it's going to have to start asking those questions. And so I look into the phase of elderhood and I ask myself, like, how can I set myself up to be a badass 80 year old man? Mm. How, how can I live my life in such a way so that when I'm there, it's like, cause an 80 year old man with properly cultivated gravitas can stop an entire army of young dudes with a word, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a, that's a level of power. And, but I think also the young, the younger generation, if we're looking for solutions for them, maybe there's some solution for that to find now instead of waiting for 30 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Very, very true. Um, and I, <clears throat> I think we're probably have like a 10 year weird, 10 year period before that kind of ancient wisdom disappears in the human experience because yeah. the people that you're describing, you know, that are 70, uh, you know, they'll be 80 and getting close to death. And that is, they're the age that were kind of born into the industrial revolution, kind of when this whole thing started to change reality into convenience, to materialism, to single family, to feminism, all these concepts that were introduced that change culture. Um, the My grandma and grandpa in Minnesota died, I believe it was about three or four years ago, <clears throat> maybe a little bit longer, but he was 97, she was 99. And to hear her stories of the Great Depression of, you know, he was a coal miner um, and worked really mm-hmm. hard, uh, fought in World War II, told me the stories of World War II. Like to hear those stories um, and the how hard they worked, the trials and things that they went through, those stories, I believe, in the next 10 years won't exist anymore in real life. Like, mm-hmm. it'll be like, well, you know, I was born in a suburban home and my dad worked 60 hours a week to provide for us and we watch TV and like, there's going to be a new norm of elder wisdom that exists that won't have the same value as the wisdom before the industrial revelation and TV and everything that we've been sold started to mm-hmm. change the mindset. So I think that's an interesting consideration and maybe a good documentary would be, you know, finding these 70 to 90 year olds and saying, Hey, let's pass on some wisdom. You know, let's consolidate your life experiences into the most important things. What can you pass on to the generations and what's wrong with society now? You know, kind of thing. Uh, that mm-hmm. might be an interesting thing to explore or else it'll just be books and history that people have to look up out of their own desire. And that's going to get rarer and rarer. The more that they're engaged in realities that produce chemicals for their brain that are pleasurable. So, mm. Yeah, I was. I had a podcast with uh, a couple of gentlemen, Mister Smith, Mister Swift, and Ivan Throne, that gave me the definition of the word esoteric, which I had never heard before. Which is esoteric is knowledge that must be passed on from person to person. It's not in a book. Mm. Esoteric wisdom is 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 person to person passed on. And so we're we are at risk if 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 we agree on that definition, we're at risk of losing some very important esoteric wisdom because. A story written down by a grandfather is not the same as a story told by you, right. told to you by your grandfather in rocking chairs watching the sunset. Right? right. Yeah. Very, very true. 
So you mentioned the Line 2 conference, and, and I know that you've got a lot to a lot to get done today, but I want to touch on that really quickly. Um, talk a little bit about what Line 2 is, your vision, uh, your vision for it, um, some of the events you've had in the past, and some of the ones that um, that you have coming up in, in, in the near and, and long-term future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Line 2, I created the um, name as... Uh, tagline would be a separate conversation uh so in the old days of landlines you'd be on line one and uh, mm-hmm. you'd hear like the beep and then you would go be like hold on just one second you'd click over and that was line two and to me mm. uh, line one right now is mainstream <laughs> america and line That's two great. is um the the title of line two is proactive solutions and education for a changing America. So I see a need right now in America, almost no matter which direction America goes, if it heals itself and can come back or collapses, like no matter what the outcome of America is right now, these classes and these speakers that I'm having will have extreme value to everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. On the first line two event, uh, my friend Luke Anderson, you know, he taught about fishing. You know, if you're going to supply for your family and the dollar collapses and you have, you know, a shovel and a fishing pole that costs $30 and you can dig up a worm, you can provide food for your family for free in silence. Um, and you don't have to shoot something that draws attention if it's dangerous. So let's talk about fishing. You know, uh, my friend Jimmy Bell, mm-hmm. he was a recon Marine, fought for eight straight years in Afghanistan does tier one training for all special forces. Um, and he taught about absolute reverence and respect for guns in your house and how to, you know, store a gun, how to hold a gun, how to teach your kids about guns. And, uh, with the most humble, uh, approach I've ever heard. And there were people that went into that. And one of my friends, she was like, I never thought I'd be open to having a gun. But after he spoke, I truly understand that if there's reverence and respect for the gun, that it can kill you. Then, you know, Mm -hmm. and so that's an important class. Um, My friend Philip Leibel uh, spoke and he showed you uh, how to, with a rock, how to make a knife and how to cut up, um, like your refrigeration goes down, how you can store meat. Uh, with salt or with smoking it and how to build a little smoke fire and just to string together sticks. And if the, you know, electricity goes down like it did and, you know, I have $800 worth of meat in my freezer and I don't know what to do with it. I don't have mm-hmm. a generator. If I'm someone who thinks this is prepared, it's like, well, you can smoke all that meat. That's inter- that's important information to know. Um, friend Stephanie News taught about fermented foods, canning, um, uh, kefir, uh, sourdough, like kind of homesteader foods that are very valuable and have a lot of uh, health benefit. Uh, and then TJ, just, you know, firecracker, <laughs> he, uh, yeah. he was a good speaker to have out and uh, he's filled with energy, but he did um, 10 uh, death proof uh, investments and uh, just kind of talking about how, what makes us a slave to the system and how to be free from the system and um, I really appreciated his perspective and, uh, yeah, he's, he has a gift with speaking and he's very smart and driven. I think that he's going to succeed in life. Uh, this next one coming up, um, Julian Pastrana, he's going to talk about North Texas no-till market gardening. It's a form of gardening where you don't disrupt the microbiome in the soil. Um, and there's less work produces better produce. Uh, and so I'm, I haven't never done that approach, so I'm curious to hear from him. Uh, 
Zach Johnson and his wife, Kaylee Johnson. Uh, they're part of Structural Elements. It's a business that they have in Louisville, kind of off the MoveNat system. And MoveNat is just short for Move Naturally. It's kind of one of the first movement guys, uh, Erwin LaCour created it. And it's a certification that just teaches you about balance, about using your body. And she also does myofascial uh, massage to release, um, you know, injuries that you've had in your life. Uh, and so they're going to just be leading uh, some classes in between classes to keep people alive and moving and, you know, instead of sitting all day. And that'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Gerald, a homeschooler for 26 years, has raised six kids, um, and she is also going to be teaching how wow. she's doing debt-free college from home. So basically starting dual credits in ninth or 10th grade, and then the last year um, after they're a senior, they kind of just can stay home, do college from home, and within um, you know a year of graduating high school, they can have a degree. And uh, she teaches people how to have passion for education, how to understand what you want to do, and then how to align your education based on that passion. And uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing from her. I'm going to talk about the first book I wrote is called Kind of Tiny Home, an Unorthodox Approach to Building and Owning Your Own Home. And, um, you know, I built my own house in Heiko, had no experience going into it. I did a paycheck to paycheck. It was extremely hard. I was challenged in many ways. And I wrote a book about the experience. And at the end, I owned an acre of land and a house that I had built. And I was debt free on that house. But it was hard. So I'm going to be very real with people on, you know, if you want to build your own house, <laughs> go for mm-hmm. it. But it's going to be hard. Um, and yeah. So I'm going to share that. And then uh, Jake Hayhurst, uh, he's one of the um, owners at the Hayhurst uh, Brothers Home Building that we have, the company here. And, um, you know, he's been a TV personality just recently on HGTV, their pilot showed, and then on DIY Network. But um, he actually, all the beautiful houses that we build, he designs and creates those in his brain, and that's what they become in reality. Um, but he also has a passion for community, like just we have an amazing group of people out here on this land and people that we can rely on people that we trust, you know, families. And, uh, his, he has a really heart, has a true heart for developing a community. So he's going to talk about developing community you can count on. And then there's a guy named Will Spencer and, uh, he is going to be the keynote speaker and he's (laughs) going to talk, welcome to the Renaissance, the future of men, women, and families. And, you know, I met Will at TJ's wedding and we just hit it off and I, I really look forward to hearing what he has to say, but, um, yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting event. And then I want to have probably a hundred other topics that are explored. Um, the next one, I believe it'll be, um, solar panels and beekeeping, uh, water catchment, um, fight or flight. One of my friends is a professional UFC fighter for 14 years saying 99% of the time you can run away, but what happens on that 1% when you can't, how to defend yourself, you know? So very real life things that have high value as far as like, um, life value. So I created it because I saw a need for it and I feel called to be a leader in this way. And it's the first thing that I've been shadow banned on. So I guess I can have a level of, uh, you know, satisfaction in knowing that I've been shadow banned. Um, and mine too got shadow banned, like on Instagram or something like oh, that. On both. Yeah. Instagram and Facebook. Anyway, I just, really? yeah, I've had both of them for like a decade and I just know what numbers I'll get. Usually I could, tell you within two to three likes or comments how many i'll get now after 10 years and yeah i mean they reduced it to an eighth of the percentage of audience sees anything that has line two in it 
And I'm pretty sure that like on, uh, because Zach and Kaylee, they're affiliated, they're um, Weston A. Price, regional directors for Weston A. Price. And I try to tag Weston A. Price and Instagram sent me a, you know, a message that said, you can't tag at Weston A. Price because they've spread COVID misinformation. And I guarantee that if you type in someone to tag, <sighs> that if, if Instagram sends you that, and you're affiliated with trying to promote it, they have an algorithm that suppresses the post. Got it. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I'm just guessing on that, but, but I, I know the posts that I put energy into and the responses they can get. And uh, these have got like maybe an eighth of the traction that any, like me posting a picture of a tree, you know, or, mm-hmm. or a dog or any, like, it, like literally, and I've put a lot of time and energy into the posters and into creating descriptions for the people. And I know, I know that if the audience that I have saw it, I would get, you know, eight times the likes and more comments, but it's, it's being actively repressed. Um, and I don't even use wording. Like I know the wording to avoid, uh, and I'm very conscious of it. Um, and even in, I've made one semi-political post about, you know, mask and just having freedom and what America is based on. And even in that post, I just, you know, I, put like a underscore in between a letter to change the word so it wouldn't show up on the algorithm you know to be marked for mm-hmm. and so i'm aware of that that little game that exists now but um it's interesting that that, that they would want to even repress like these kind of things in america um mm-hmm. of course they do yeah i mean it's not a mystery or not surprising but it's where we're at yeah, they don't actually want people to have solutions, right? The, right. Whole, the whole idea is to cultivate <laughs> hopelessness and inevitability. Well, really, that's the game. Is that is that you know we're trapped in this, and I and I fall prey to this. I see my friends falling prey to this. Like, oh, there's some sense of inevitability. You know, the Great Reset is inevitable, or collapse is inevitable on the other side, and there's nothing we can do. It's going to come, and it's like, but if you start talking to people about actual sovereignty, things they can begin doing to prepare to liberate themselves from the system. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing that gets suppressed because you can, you can pop off you or I or whatever can pop off about politics or whatever. But as soon as solutions start getting proposed, that's where you start crossing the line. In fact, I saw, I saw a post on Instagram, I think it was this past week um, about like what really gets you censored. You can, you can talk philosophy and theology, no problem. But as soon as you start talking about people's behavior, mm-hmm. and you start saying behave, actual actions are wrong. Right. That's where you cross a really big red line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be, they're, they're trying to implement a Marxist reality. And I, um, I believe that they're not going to do it through law. They're going to do it through group think. And that's already happened. And yes. It's just, you know, it's just so funny out here, like the whole mass thing. I'm not going to get into that, but, right. um, out here in the country, we've been blessed. To, like I've literally maybe worn a mask like 10 times in the last two years. And like maybe five of those times I was on an airplane, uh, and I had to, and, uh, but when I remember like, you know, going into the small town here, there'd be a lot of people with masks, but no one would ever tell me to put one on. But I remember like there were more people that had on masks in this small town when I go to the store than didn't have on masks. And, uh, it was an interesting psychological experience for me, for them, for, to have people observe me and to feel their judgment in their eyes. And like, I'm a pretty strong person. Like I'm, I'm not swayed by people's thoughts that much or like, I don't really, I mean, like I'm not mean or anything to people, but it's like, I'm, I'm good with myself. And, uh, mm-hmm. but then I go into Dallas and 
99% of people, and we're talking millions of people, are all driving around with masks and in every place mm-hmm. with masks. And they're telling you to put on masks at the door. And all of a sudden, and it's called a mandate. And a mandate is not a law. It's like, it's only no. a mandate if you agree to it. And, That's right. Um, so it's it's a uh, it was like oh this this feels different for me like I I feel like I could be in danger personally because there are so many people that disagree with me um, and it's not that it you know it changes the quote unquote science around the subject it's just that people right. now millions of people in the city are looking at me as the one weird person who wants covid to kill everybody in the world you know it's like but yeah it's been right. two years yeah. like, it didn't you know, happen and, uh, yes um, uh so it, it's interesting to know that they are they will be relying on groupthink and that the majority of americans are you know hypnotized through their television and mass psychosis is real and mm-hmm. um group think is more powerful than law and most people don't want to be considered the one weird person where it's not falling in line with reality and that's and that's how they're going to get people to believe and fall into line with these things they're implementing but yeah interesting time to be alive man but jesus is on the throne and you know <laughs> we uh we have an eternal perspective on things and at the same time maybe if we're called to be leaders and god will give us some wisdom on how to um create a new direction and a new uh, line of information that can be received, you know? Yeah. With my podcast with laser hodl, um, the, the Bitcoin expert who has since disappeared, he's, he's, uh, he's gone. He, he has, he has moved on in, in, into the an, an, an anonymous ether. If you happen to hear his voice, he lives somewhere in Texas. So if you hear a familiar voice, let me know. But um you know, he talked about raising up a people and like, if you were God and you were going to raise up a people, you would certainly create, um, you would certainly create the circumstances to do that, or at least allow the circumstances to do that. And I think, um, if we can agree on, on one thing, meaning all of us as Christians, like that seems, that seems to be happening in an age when, you know, books like the psychedelic Christian are being written, you know, by your street. When does that book come out by the way? Or um, when is it scheduled to? So yeah, I, it's actually, I mean, it's kind of available right now, but we did the book through Blurb, and Blurb is like slightly awkward to interact with, and then to provide a link to Blurb. So we're trying to convert it to KDP, which will then make it much easier to upload to Amazon. So hopefully within this week, it'll be available on Amazon, and I've ordered a bulk shipment of the books uh, for events and to ship out to people for podcasts and for people that want to just have something signed. So within this week, uh, there'll be an announcement. Uh, that the book will be available on Amazon and that if you want a signed copy, you can just also make a post and be promoting that as well. So, and hopefully ebook, okay. uh, Kindle and Audible as well. And I want to do a documentary on it because it's not very long. And basically before each chapter, I'm just going to explain from my perspective why I wrote the chapter, what stage of life I was at when I wrote the chapter, um, and kind of uh, give a little background on the book and almost like a, make a miniature documentary because I'm just aware that very few people read anymore. And uh, right. if you make a documentary and it's, you know, an hour long and, you know, uh, it ta- it explores that subject, talks, you know, I read the book, it's read out loud, but also explaining some of the poetry or the reasons why I posted those verses in correlation to the subject matter then um, I believe more people will watch the video than will buy the book. And so that'll be a part of the plan as well. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, this is, this has been uh, really fantastic and I want to drive uh, more people to, to check out you and, and, and the book. And, and one thing, just as a side note that I've noticed is that when you go to Amazon and pull up a book, now the first version of the book that used to be suggested was paperback. Now the first version of a book that's suggested on Amazon, if you just search for whatever book is the audio is the audible auto audio book version. Really? Inevitably like, you know, yeah, yeah. So I haven't like, seen that. It's so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so like the default, like if I go to search for like just the first book that comes to mind is The Household and the War for the Cosmos by C.R. Wiley, who was a guest on my podcast um, last week, and that'll be coming out soon. If you search for that book, it's there's a paperback version, there's a Kindle version, and there's an audiobook version. And of every book that I've searched for, the audiobook version is the is when you when you actually look at the search results, it's always the audiobook version, and I have to click through actively to get find the paperback or the Kindle version. So huh. interesting. Um, people don't, I guess, people aren't, truly aren't reading anymore. But um, it's exciting that this this is going to be out there for people in an audio version as well, because I think the the how personal your story is. Will you be doing the audio version, reading it yourself? E- more than likely, yes. I think that'd be super powerful for people to hear your words and your voice about your experience. Like that will have a, let's say music to it that I, I think it would be difficult to find another, um, another voiceover artist, let's say to, to reproduce. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. So where can we go to, uh, where can, where can uh, men go to find out more about you and what you do? <clears throat> uh, let's see. You know, I've got accounts on, you know, Telegram is Paul Reese, uh, R-I-S-S-E. Um, Facebook, Paul Reese. Instagram, Paul Reese, P-A-U-L-R-I-S-S-E. Super simple. Um, I've prayed about whether or not to transition out of these kind of obvious ones and to kind of um, almost go land-based. I've been praying about that. Um, you know, there's advantages. Snail mail? Uh, well, just like word of mouth <laughs> posters, my immediate environment oh, uh, affecting that as opposed to trying to reach a larger audience. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, if you're wanting to sell a book, you know, in your immediate environment, you might have a limited amount. If you have a big following, you can sell a lot. Yeah. So there's little trappings to it all, but I'm uh, praying through whether or not to just change my mode of communication as things continue to unfold. And there may be a time this next year to two years where I just kind of, do a similar thing and i just develop relationships with people around me and go old school again um but uh that hasn't happened yet and uh but it may but right now instagram facebook telegram i guess i'm on twitter but i never use it really except for Mm -hmm. to watch people and watch crypto stuff but it's crypto um, crypto america c-r-y-p-t-o-m-e-r-i-c-a and uh yeah, on YouTube, uh, I have a channel, and I'll be uploading my podcast to the YouTube channel on uh, these coming months as well. And that's Paul Reese as well. Excellent. Well, best of luck on your book launch. Thanks so much for engaging in, in some of these really deep and heady topics topics with me. And, and uh, I'm excited to speak at your event in a couple of weeks. In fact, um, we touched on some of the issues related to uh, the home and 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 the uh, the younger generation and, and rebuilding society and I started working on my talk yesterday and, and some of these subjects are already in there. Yeah, I'm really I'm really looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, I can't wait, man. And honestly, I can't wait for the people who are out here that I know will be attending to um, hear your message because just in our conversations, mm. I just I I love it. It's uh, you're one of those people that I meet in life and it's like okay, we can be friends until we die. Let's just go for it. 
And, um, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, it's so uh, I've enjoyed meeting you and I can't wait to hear your speech. And um, yeah, it's going to be a fun event. Uh, so thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on these subjects and um, I wish you the best of luck and we'll be praying for the success of your podcast and all your endeavors, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.